please be seated. Deputy Speaker. Yes, ma'am. If I may rise on a point of privilege, you have welcomed this member, uh, announced that the member was sworn in uh, at the time that he was sworn in, but it was during the COVID period and unfortunately he could not travel. So, Speaker, it gives me a great pleasure to announce to you, sir, and to the House that if you see a new face, it is the Honourable Myberg who has joined us uh, in the DA caucus. And, uh, Speaker, if I may ask that he stands so that everyone gets a chance to see him. Um, that, is the, that is the member who we couldn't say hello to when you announced him. Thank you, Speaker. Uh, Chief Whip of the Opposition, thank you very much, but you are really being creative with privilege. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay because it's uh, good news anyway, so we won't quarrel with you about it. Um, about it. Uh, honorable members, uh, before we proceed with today's work, I wish to announce that the uh, oh, uh, well, at least you're doing your whippery work today. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, honorable members, before we proceed with today's uh, business, it said, I wish to announce that the vacancies which occurred in the National Assembly due to the passing on of Mr. E. R. K. Mapadze and Professor H. B. Mkize have been filled by the nomination of Ms. G.P. Marekwa and Ms. Z.A. Kota Mpeko, with effect from the 16th November 2021, respectively. The members have made the subscribed oath and affirmation in the Speaker's office. Uh, welcome, uh, honorable members. Uh, are they here? Inside the house. Thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Mazzoni, you deprived me of the opportunity to call the member to rise. You did it yourself. <laughs> okay, next time we'll do it correctly. Don't worry. As usual, uh, please uh, settle down, members, and stay in your allocated seat uh, so that we adhere to the required protocols. The first item on, the, on today's order paper is questions addressed to ministers in cluster one, peace and security. There are four supplementary questions. This is a reminder, really, on each question. Parties have given an indication uh, which their members wish to pose. Adequate notice was given to parties for this purpose. This was done to facilitate participation of members who are connecting to the sitting through the virtual platform. The members who will pose supplementary questions will be recognized. In allocating opportunities for questions, the principle of fairness naturally is applied. If a member who is supposed to ask a supplementary question through the virtual platform is unable to do so due to technical problems, the party whip on duty will be allowed to ask the question on behalf of their member. 
When all supplementary questions have been answered by the executive, we will proceed to the next question on the question paper. The first question has been asked by the Honorable T.N. Mutle to the Minister of Defense and Military Veterans. I've been informed that the minister uh, will be answering questions from the virtual platform. Honorable Minister. <laughs> uh, Honorable Minister, if you listen to me reading, you would know which one it is. <laughs> you don't have to worry. You'll recognize her immediately. you hear her voice. Is there a problem with connection? Honorable Mudise? <clears throat> Yes, there was a, uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. There was an indication from the minister that if he she might um, uh, uh, experience connectivity, Deputy Minister will be able to take questions. Deputy Minister is here in the house. Thank you, uh, uh, Deputy Minister. Are you ready? Where are you? Uh, Deputy Speaker. Yes. Yes. The minister has not been even attending committee meetings due to ill health. We do not know now what the situation is right now. Thank you. Who's that now? Kim Mujon. Mafanya, Mafanya, Seko Mafanya. Honorable Seko Mafanya. Thank you. Can we, uh, oh, it's okay, okay. Honorable members, can we agree that uh, this matter will be handled? Uh, we will have to, it has implications for our program now. So we'll have to move to the next question. Yes, honorable member? As I was talking about him to speak, Honourable Speaker, Deputy, Deputty Speaker. Speaker. So, yeah. so, so no, we are invited now. There's no, 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 no. I didn't give finished. you a chance to speak, uh, Honourable Member. Please, man. Please, please. You have to speak only when you are recognised. <coughs> Point of order, Chair. Yes, you have to speak only when you are recognised. The rules say that. If you haven't read them, go and reread them. Yeah. Honorable members, let's proceed, please. Uh, Honorable Deputy Minister, please go ahead. Honorable Deputy Speaker, thank you for the, for the opportunity. Uh, let me just explain. Let me just explain, Deputy Speaker, that uh, the minister is uh, in the house today virtually. Uh, she, did, she did indicate that uh, 
the venue where she is uh, has connectivity issues. Um, so as we proceed with the, the sitting this afternoon, uh, there will be those glitches in the process. I am unable to simply step in. Unfortunately, if there is no indication that the minister is unable to speak herself from where she is. However, in response to the question uh, we have before us, question 266, the presidential task team, which was established at the beginning of November last year, was assigned the responsibility to address the grievances that were presented by the marchers that were at the union building on the 10th of November. The presidential task team, under the leadership of the deputy president, decided to establish work streams in order to deal with all of the grievances that were contained in the submission of the marchers. To this end, the Minister of Defense and Military Veterans, the Minister in the Presidency then, the late Honorable uh, Jackson Mtembo, and the Deputy Minister of Defense were roped in to constitute this task team. In addition to the task team, it was also decided that uh, the premiers of the provinces should be part of the intervention. Eight work streams were established, Deputy Speaker, to deal with the different areas, and these are the following one. The legislative review work that is needed around the Military Veterans Act of uh, 2011, to the organizational redesign of the Department of De Defense. Three, a work stream that was to look into the military veterans pension that is in the act, which of course to this uh, point has not been implemented. Four, a work stream to look into heritage and memorialization matters. Fifth, the fifth uh, work stream was to look into communication challenges of the Department of Military Veterans. The sixth work stream was to look into the database verification and the cleansing of the database of the Department of Military Veterans. The seventh work stream was to look into social economic support for these military veterans. And lastly, uh, there was a work stream to look at the economic opportunities in other departments, especially of the economic cluster that can be uh, reinforced for military veterans. That is the response that the, the ministry led by the presidential tax team undertook following the march of the 10th of November 2020. Thank you very much. Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable uh, Deputy Minister. The first supplementary question is by Honorable Mutle. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Uh, and thank you to the Deputy Minister for that response. 
what what are the further engagement between government and the military veterans in trying to respond to respond to the challenges that the uh, military veterans are faced with and these are evidence uh, which led to uh, the unprecedented uh, move taken by military veterans as a result of these challenges that uh, are burning on their side. So what are the tangible uh, resolves that have been made so far? Deputy Minister. Uh, <clears throat> Deputy Speaker, through you, the interventions made to respond to the demands of the marchers of the 10th of November last year uh, involves uh, the engagement primarily with Treasury to make available financial resources to implement some of the benefits that are in the, in the law, in the Military Veterans Act, which the department has not been able to roll out over the last 10 years due to a limited budget. Uh, specifically, the focus has been on implementing the payout of uh, a military veterans pension to these military veterans. Work is at an advanced stage. The last uh, update of the uh, work stream responsible for pensions was that there was a possibility that that pension could be paid even before this financial year at the 31st, on the 31st of March is out. Uh, if this does not happen, it is almost uh, certain that uh, at the beginning of the next financial year in April, that military veterans pension would be paid out. With respect to another area, that is uh, more uh, challenging, which is socioeconomic support. The work stream responsible for housing, education, and health is still to put on the table the new arrangement in which the Department of Military Veterans will collaborate with provincial departments in rolling out services with respect to these three areas of need of our military veterans. Thank you. Uh, Deputy Minister, thank you. Your time has exceeded. Uh, you may get an opportunity later on during your responses to the other questions. The third supplementary question? No, is the second. It's by SJF Marais. Um, Minister or Deputy Minister, it is common knowledge that everyone questions whether all of those persons qualifies to be military veterans in terms of the act, with some clearly much too young to qualify, and some not belonging to a SAMWA member, but that all of them apparently are part of the RET faction. <laughs> Minister, by going, Minister, by going into the negotiations with this group that no, led to the... Honorable Zulu, better way, no Kumaganja, no one menuangala. 
Should Geraldine Truman. Oh, it does not matter how strong you feel about these matters. You can't interrupt the house as rudely as you do. No, we don't accept. Honorable members of order. Minister Zul, please. Please. This is terrible. I agree. I agree. Terrible. Uh, uh, finish your question, Daddy. Yes, can I just my time back, please? Finish your much. time, Daddy. Don't Thank give you. instructions. No, I'm just requesting. I'm requesting. Thank you. Minister, by going into the negotiation with this group that led to the hostage drama, you have given them legitimacy and official recognition. Please tell us what you have done to assure their bona fides as registered members on the military database prior to the meeting and why they were allowed to bypass the Department of Military Veterans and SOMWA as other military veterans are obliged to do. If found that some persons attending the meeting is not and or do not qualify as military veterans, what are you going to do to bring them to justice? I thank you. Uh, thank you. Honorable Deputy Minister, uh, Honorable Deputy Minister, just a moment. I just want to make one important point. That honorable members here in the House and outside, the Deputy Minister and the ministers who are here uh, have the capacity to answer questions. So we don't have to do that for them. Uh, it's also disrespectful of them and what they would say in the first place. So I, I do plead with everyone on the platform and inside the House to respect the House and its individual members who have a duty to respond to questions posed to them. Thank you very much. Uh, Deputy Minister, please go ahead. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. The Presidential task team right from the beginning was aware that military veterans are represented by officially acknowledged military veterans associations. However, in appreciation of the stress, the stress that is there within the community because of uh, inadequate services to this community, it was the view of the task team that we must be accommodative of everyone who is a military veteran who wants to reach out to government to be heard. And it was for that reason that uh, this group of marchers were met. Um, I must uh, indicate to the House that uh, the verification of military veterans is one of the areas, as I pointed out, that the presidential task team decided to uh, reorganize for because uh, in the recent years, the verification process had been uh, suspended. But that Thank verification you, process has now been reestablished. A panel is in place, uh, and uh, all of these uh, military veterans associations, they've been invited to be observers. With respect to the 57... Honorable, Honorable Deputy Minister, I'm sorry your time has expired. Uh, you will have to make it up in the third responses. Um, I gave you enough time to add up. The third supplementary question is asked by Honorable WTI Mafanya. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Minister, the Deputy President was given the responsibility of handling the concerns of military veterans. 
We know that for a long time he has been absent due to ill health. How did his absence affect the resolutions of these problems with or without him? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Deputy Minister. Deputy Speaker, the work streams once they were established have continued to meet even as we are the sitting today. Those work streams are busy with their work. They never stopped uh, when the Deputy President was uh, not available. They continued to meet. We have tabled a report of the work streams to the Oversight Committee and we will be following up that report update of what uh, is progress with respect to each of those work streams uh, to this point. As I said earlier on, um, we have never undermined the obligation of the ministry and the department to make sure that we make good the statutory obligations of government in supporting these military veterans, and that is uh, very much uh, you know, taken serious within the ministry. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Minister. Honorable Sukurs. Deputy Speaker, Mr. Thring will take the follow-up question. I did send I'm you a sorry, message. you did send me a note. I apologize. I hope yeah, he's it's on the right platform. in front of Thank me. You. Yeah. Honorable Thring. Uh, speak, sir. He doesn't seem to be on the platform, sir. You didn't... Uh... No, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Well, yeah. in that case, then, I might just ask the Deputy Minister to follow up as far as the 57 were concerned. Will you please respond to the situation surrounding the investigation around that issue? Thank okay. you so much. All right, thank you. You got that, Deputy yes. Speaker? Yes, thank you very much, Deputy Speaker, and Mr. Sin for the question. Uh, I earlier on wanted to share that uh, the information that uh, the Department of Military Veterans has undertaken to verify the 57 uh, military veterans uh, who appeared in the case uh, that uh, is before the courts as a result of the hostage uh, drama that occurred at uh, St. George's. The glitch that uh, was encountered is that uh, the investigating team uh, was uh, not forthcoming with the details of uh, the defendants and uh, as a result we had to uh, approach the uh, prosecution in order to get those details of the uh, de uh, defendants involved but uh, it is an undertaking which the department is very much uh, you know, aware of its uh, importance for us to deal with the matter in a procedural way. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Um, we now move to question 258, asked by Honorable M. Tlengwa to the Minister of International Relations and Cooperation. Honorable Minister. Mm. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. The uh, reply to the question uh, is as follows. Of course, uh, uh, Deputy Speaker, that uh, unrest and destruction of property 
that we witnessed in July uh, had a significant impact on our economy, which is already uh, strained and uh, which is part of what we're trying to buttress as our post uh, or during this recovery period post the heavy lockdown of COVID-19. So uh, what was affected primarily is the economy and not the uh, image of South Africa or its standing uh, in the region. We also had uh, an impact on the transportation of goods to countries in the region, but steps were taken speedily to ensure that goods do reach uh, countries within the Sadiq region, particularly our neighborhood, uh, that are supported by the logistics uh, systems in South Africa. Nevertheless, given these uh, uh, difficulties posed uh, by uh, those riots and protests, uh, we continue as South Africa to play our role as a responsible member of the Southern African development community. And bilaterally, we collaborate with all countries uh, in our region. So uh, we continue uh, to engage and to be uh, treated as a significant uh, uh, partner of the SADC region, and there hasn't been uh, any uh, uh, harm uh, with respect to how we are viewed. Many countries uh, in the region and on the continent do experience uh, difficulties from time to time. This does not lead to a desertion uh, by other countries. Similarly, South Africa enjoys the support of countries on the continent, and they understand the steps government is taking to ensure we address those core factors associated with those riots and uh, address uh, both the needs of our economy and the needs of the people of South Africa. Thank you very much, uh, Chair, uh, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Honorable Stengwa. Um, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Uh, Honorable Minister, um, noting what you have said, I think it is also fair, however, for us to concede to the fact that this was the first time that South Africa found itself under a predicament of behavior which arose out of political considerations in response to a judicial decision. And therefore, we find ourselves now, you know, inching towards a direction which is not desirable. Um, which is consistent, of course, with behaviors we have seen elsewhere on the continent and riots and so on. So therefore, Minister, what assurances were you then able to give to the continent and the region, as well as the international community generally that looks to South Africa for conflict resolution on the continent when we are now seemingly entering the ranks of those countries in need of intervention? And what are the consequences and implications of July on diplomatic relations and on diplomatic scales? And whether, Minister, you did have any meetings, of course, with um, any of the heads of missions in the country to, to deal with the issues arising out of that, some of them which you have um, responded to, including to the flow of goods um, as well. And so how are we um, proactively dealing with the allay the collective anxieties of those that may be affected really by um, the kind of behavior that we saw and the risks which arise if it should happen again. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Minister. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. 
Uh, I believe that uh, while the incidents uh, that occurred in July were and are of great concern to government, all political parties and the people of our country, it is not the first time South Africa has experienced riots. Uh, under apartheid, uh, uh, we had uh, terrible uh, uh, inc incidents uh, throughout our country and there was much uh, destruction. This doesn't in any way seek to ameliorate what happened, but it is not the first time uh, we've had uh, such level of violence uh, and protest. As to the link between a judicial decision and a political uh, office or political uh, uh, matter, I'm unable uh, to establish the link. I do not have an investigative report that has a seamless link uh, uh, in, in the matters Honorable Tlengwa uh, has, has referred to. With respect to the continent and how we viewed, um, there is understanding. We were able to explain uh, uh, in bilateral meetings and other fora where the matter uh, uh, did come up. But I didn't uh, have a sense that it was being raised in a manner that suggested a lack of confidence in South Africa's ability to recover, or indeed a lack of confidence in its ability to manage uh, future uh, such situations. There was appreciation for what has been done with respect to support through insurance provisions uh, uh, for a recovery of business uh, uh, entities, as well as uh, admiration for the conduct, particularly of civil society uh, in South Africa. We did, as Honorable Tlengwa indicated, brief the heads of mission, particularly with respect of, uh, to the actions uh, that the government would take in order to uh, provide assistance where uh, businesses had lost significant funds and particularly assistance to address those uh, uh, who uh, were uninsured and not provided for in terms of formal instruments uh, to help them uh, recover. We also were very, uh, uh, really grateful that several missions made food parcels available to assist communities that had been impacted in terms of supply of basic uh, necessity. Um, all of this showed the support uh, that South Africa continues to enjoy in the international community. Thank you, Chair. Honorable K.R.J. Mishwe. Thank you, oh. Deputy Speaker. The July unrest showed how easily our economy could be held to ransom. News reports went around the world about how our police failed to prevent the loss of over 300 lives and billions of rents of damage done to business. In fact, Southern Chairman and Mozambique President Philippe Nussi allegedly said the riots were not just a threat to human life, but they also generated instability, throttled economic growth, amplified risk, and hindered the return of much-needed investments. My question is whether there are any indications that the port <coughs> has seen fewer exports of products from our neighboring states to the rest of the world since the unrest, and whether any of those ports have been diverted, or the exports rather, have been diverted to Richards Bay, Baira, Walvis Bay, or Dar es Salaam. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, 
thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. I think the question with respect to uh, exports uh, might best be directed to uh, uh, the Department of Trade and Industry. However, I will uh, uh, gather the information and submit it to the Honorable uh, Mishra. Uh, I'm not aware of the comments of the uh, uh, SADC uh, uh, chair at the time, the president of Mozambique, President Felipe Nusi. Uh, we were at that time very uh, occupied with our consideration of the deployment of SADC forces to Mozambique to assist Mozambique uh, with addressing an insurrection where hundreds of people have been killed in the most horrible acts of beheadings uh, and other horrendous uh, executions. And in fact, uh, we have deployed our troops as part of a SADC mission to Mozambique to provide assistance. And I know that uh, President Nusi is grateful uh, for South Africa's support and assistance in handling extremist incursions in his country and assisting his own country's forces to address a problem that could have been and could become a threat to the region. So I'm not aware of those comments, but I do know what we have done in support of Mozambique in its worst hour of need. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Kwankwa. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, in the minister's response, you already highlighted the fact that the, riot, the riots or the civil unrest which took place in parts of Gauteng and Kaiseran, they disrupted and affected transportation of goods in the region. My question to the minister is whether or not the, the, the civil unrest which took place in the country at the time did not affect South Africa's strategic position as a port of entry for trade into the rest of the African continent? If yes, what steps have they taken to remedy that? If no, what is the situation? Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker, and to the Honorable Kwankwa. Um, Honorable Kwankwa would be aware that uh, Upon uh, the uh, riots occurring and being very aware of the effect uh, that could uh, occur with respect to the transport of goods uh, to the region, immediate steps were taken to introduce measures to ensure that uh, transport was able to move from point to point in our country and to the borders uh, of neighboring states to ensure that goods are delivered. Steps were also taken to provide support to ports that had been affected by the violence and to ensure uh, that the cranes were able to uh, operate uh, in as short a time as possible. There was some delay, particularly uh, in export of heavy goods. But my understanding uh, from the measures that were taken is with respect to basic necessities. Uh, while there was fear that there would be significant inadequacy, the quick response of the South African government and the various agencies related to logistics support, as well as private sector companies operating in the export sector, we were able to ensure 
that goods were delivered on time and in good condition. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you, uh, Minister. Uh, Honorable Nkosi, hey, your initial. Honorable B.S. Nkosi. Chairperson, it, it, looks, it looks like the, the member has got a problem in the visual platform. Can I take the question? Yeah, you may take it. Yeah. All right. Thank you, sir. According to the question from Mr. Nkosi, is that the question is what engagement is the department undertaking through, through its missions abroad for us? Take it, uh, you'll be represented by We've taken over your question. Go ahead, uh, Honorable Member. That's the rule I read at the beginning of the meeting. The, the, thank you, Deputy Speaker. The question is, what engagement is the department undertaking through its missions abroad to assure investors and potential investors that South Africa remains an investment destination of choice and that all investments are protected in South Africa? I thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Nkosi, you can be assured, uh, Honorable Peki Khadeb did say this is your question. He didn't take it over as perhaps I suggested completely. Uh, Honorable Minister? Honorable Minister, please. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy uh, Speaker. Uh, we have been uh, consistently briefing our uh, missions uh, throughout uh, the world to provide them with updates on developments uh, in South Africa with respect to the uh, awful events of July uh, this year. And uh, on a regular basis, they brief the foreign uh, ministries or any other ministry that may uh, want uh, uh, information on uh, developments in our country. I've also had occasion to brief ministers uh, of the African Union through the Executive Council of the African Union. Uh, I've held a range of bilateral meetings. I've briefed the G20 countries as well as uh, the G7. So wherever we have the opportunity, uh, we provide assurance, we indicate uh, that uh, we are paying attention both to addressing uh, the uh, causes uh, of uh, the protests and ensuring uh, that there's a seamless return uh, to full economic activity in our country. So our missions are, are, are fully uh, uh, engaged uh, with representatives in the countries in which they are, and they are providing us with support and assistance. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. 
Thank you very much. We now move to question 270, asked by Honorable Ellen Moss to the Minister of Police. Uh, Honorable Minister. Sorry, Honorable Speaker, the Minister is in Turkey. If you may allow, I can respond to the question. There is an Interpol conference taking place there. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. I was about to call you. Uh, go ahead, Honorable <laughs> Deputy Minister of Police. No, no thank, thank you very much, uh, uh, Deputy Speaker, for the opportunity. Uh, our response to the question raised is that the South African Police Service implementation plan for the period 25th November 2021 to 10 December 2021 for the 16 days of activism for no violence against women and children focuses on the following activities. Uh, dialogues and information sharing, awareness raising for members of the division, visible policing and operations on gender-based violence and sexual offenses, victim empowerment, child justice act and abuse of elderly people, distribution of pamphlets by the South African Police Service Communication Nodal Point, awareness raising to members of SAPS on trafficking and in persons. And these activities are taking place throughout uh, the country in various provinces, for example, in the Eastern Cape, there will be a national communication engagement in Lusukusiki, a community outreach awareness campaign on crime against women and children, culminating into an imbizo on the 3rd of December 2021, door-to-door -door campaigns to raise community awareness in conjunction with crime prevention activities and operations. Closure of 16 days campaign, community outreach awareness campaign on crime against women and children. And the launch of 16 days campaign, community outreach awareness campaign on crimes against women and children. Public education to educate communities about GBV and femicide. Peace road block to create awareness about domestic violence and GBV break the silence on women and children abuse, to create awareness about uh, uh, GBV and distribution of pamphlets to sensitize communities against GBVF, and march on GB and GBF and dialogue to insensitize communities regarding the sketch. Soul City GBV drive and dialogue presentation to educate the public on reduction strategies and incidences with support of Matthew FM radio station. And in Houghton, we'll be doing loudly community engagement and distribution of pamphlets, men's dialogues to discuss the sketch of GBV and encourage debate amongst men. We'll be having roadshows to engage communities to address the sketch. We'll also have a prayer walk divine intervention against GBVF, visit old age homes, awareness raising to elderly people on GBV, capacity building, conduct training to promote professionalism and handling of victims of GBVF. In KwaZulu-Natal, a national community engagement in Inanda, 
community outreach awareness campaign on crimes against women and children, awareness campaign on information sharing on GBV to educate the community, and IMBIZO will be organized in Inanda and Zululand community outreach awareness campaign on crime against women and children, distribution of pamphlets, pamphlets engaging communities to address GBVF, Roadshows will be engaged in and communities to address the sketch. We'll also visit old age homes to raise awareness against GBV. Loud yelling and pamphlets distribution, 16 days of act activism, educate community in GBV. One-on-one -on -one talks, educate communities around the sketch. We'll also have a prayer day on 16 days of activism, educate communities around this province. In Limpopo, we'll engage in loud hailing to alert communities about the prevention of the sketch. We'll also uh, engage- Honorable Deputy Minister, I would suggest you stop there because uh, you have exceeded my generosity. I'm thank sorry. You. Thank you, Chair. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Jumad Peterson, you taking the supplementary question. Thank you, Honorable De Deputy Speaker. Honorable Deputy Minister, given the negative impact uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic and the possibility of the fourth wave, and with the decline in the numerical capacity of intermediaries, court preparation officers, and prosecutors as per your response, how does the department plan on addressing the situation to ensure that justice remains accessible to victims and survivors of sexual offences. I thank you. Thank you. Uh, Honourable Deputy Minister. Uh, th th thank you, Chair. The, the programme on uh, our fight on the 16 days of activism is a problem that the SUBS has declared the fight against GBV to be a 365 days intervention. In addition to this, the Ministry has ensured that matters of GVV remain part of all our community engagement activities. Provinces were also requested to develop plans for ongoing campaigns regarding gender-based violence to be conducted throughout the year. The physical police, policing and operations monitors this through reports from provinces. We are working very closely with the Justice Department to ensure that there is effective prosecution in this regard on cases that involve uh, issues of women and ch ch child abuse. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Uh, 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 you mean deputy. Uh, the, honorable members, the next uh, supplementary question is Honorable Terra Blanchard. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Minister, you raised a lot of issues, a typical shotgun approach. Now, the crime statistics that the minister released on the 19th of November 2021 indicate that 9,556 rape cases were registered from July to September this year a 7.1% rise if compared with the same period the previous year, 2020. Uh, Deputy Minister, South Africans don't trust you and your department's programs anymore. 
to get the situation under control. Why should they believe you this time? Thank you. Honorable Deputy Minister. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. It is incorrect to say that South Africans don't trust the South African police. The opposite is the case. We, we have interacted with communities around this issue and our view have always been our fight against GBV is a fight that will succeed working together with our communities. And we are continuing to do this and we see our communities responding positively to the programs that we initiate. And we will continue to make a call to the public representatives that they have a role to play, including Honorable Terry Blanche. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank, thank you, Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, Honorable Sheikh, Imam. Thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Minister, what I haven't heard is how you're going to deal with the root causes of gender-based violence. And that is the socio-economic conditions under which our people live. And secondly, and more importantly, the role of civil society organizations, NGOs, NPOs, neighborhood watches and policing forums. Many of these institutions and organizations come after the fact in front of police stations and courts asking you not to provide bail, but they are not there to prevent this gender-based violence. So my question is, what are we going to do to prevent it and deal with the root causes of it? Thank you, uh, uh, Deputy Speaker. Thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. I agree fully with uh, uh, Honorable Imam that there are root causes to the problem of GBV, and as the police, we have also made that determination. And in fact, government, through the strategic approach on our fight against crime, have made that determination. We need to deal with the root causes, which is a, a product of the social ills that South Africa has. We must all agree that apartheid has had its impact on the South African society. The manner in which uh, young men and women, young women are being socialized from childhood perpetuate this uh, perspective of believing in uh, resolving issues through the use of force. Education is going to play a key role in the resolution of this problem, that our children from an early age should be socialized in such a manner that they should see each other as uh, uh, boys and girls, as human beings, not look at the other one as a weakling who can only be assisted or be done favors when it comes to things that they need to do. Our orientation should change on how we raise our children, and that is going to be the lasting solution to the problems that we have. It doesn't matter how many police officers you will deploy. If you don't deal with the psychological setup of our communities, the problem will remain. We also agree that civil society has a role to play, and we do extend our hand as we go to communities 
to work with them in our fight against this scourge. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you very much, Deputy Minister. The next question and the last on this question is by Honorable H.A. Shembeni. Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Deputy Minister, your recently released crime statistics demonstrate that crime is truly out of hand and that the rape, murder, and abuse of women and children happens every day in this country. The abducting of the Moti children and their eventual return without police involvement is proof that SAPS has no capacity to resolve these cases. Does SAPS know at this stage who was involved with the kidnapping of the Monty children? Or have you given up those investigations because they have returned home? Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, sir. Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, the South African police have not given up and we have not failed in our fight against crime. The investigations around the question that the member has raised, despite the fact that it's a new question, they are ongoing. And uh, we will definitely not stop because the children have been returned home. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. The next question is 288. It's asked by Honorable A.G. Whitfield to the Minister of Police. Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. For the question that has been asked, our response to it is that uh, a total of 7,519 7, uh, trainees were trained through the system, and out of this, others fell through, and were only able to have 7,360 that uh, were ultimately enrolled as uh, members of the South African Police Service. And in terms of the number that has exited the system during the period in review is 15,943. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. Uh, you mean deputy, I know. Uh, Honorable Whitfield. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. That is a net loss of uh, seven or 8,000 members of the South African Police Service. And almost every day, my colleagues and I on the committee receive desperate emails from aspirant trainee police officers who've fallen between the cracks of a broken department. The fact is, Honorable Deputy Minister, that recent budgets cuts have gutted the visible policing program, which is the key program responsible for crime prevention. While the VIP protection budget has enjoyed annual increases for the past 20 years. In fact, the VIP protection budget has increased by over 1,200% in the last 20 years. Budget reductions, poor planning, skewed prioritization have led to devastating consequences for frontline policing, which will inevitably lead to more crime and insecurity in our country. Since 2016-17, SAP's fixed establishment has declined from 194,000 to 182,000 personnel. We have lost 32,600 people since 2016-17, and it is now projected that by 23-24, we will only have 163,000 members in the fixed establishment. In light of this crisis in frontline policing, will the Deputy Minister agree to the proposal 
to slash the VIP protection budget in half and redirect this funding to visible policing so that we can put more boots on the ground to keep our communities safe? Or will the minister continue to support increases to the VIP budget for the few at the expense of the many? Thank you, Honourable Deputy Minister. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Speaker. It is correct that uh, in the past uh, financial year, uh, 2020-2021, we were not able to have intake for training because of the conditions that we found ourselves in which have also impacted also to this financial year. However, Deputy Speaker, we we have, of course, acknowledged the fact that there is a shortage and there is a need for us to increase this. And in that regard, we have already taken a decision to enroll about 3,000, to have 3,000 intakes from uh, 2,000 of which comes from the uh, Public Service Administration personnel within SAPS, and a thousand of that comes from uh, the, the reserves. And in the coming financial year, we intend to have an intake of 10,000 uh, new recruits who are going to go into our facilities. And we are aware that our facilities have a limited capacity in terms of the number of people we can train per year. And in that regard, there are discussions that are taking place led by the minister with the Minister of Defence so that we can look at the possibility of utilising their facilities for purposes of training. We are definitely committed to ensure that uh, we increase the SEPs personnel that we have. We don't want to solve a problem by creating another problem because the proposal that Honourable Whitfield is making is to, for us to create a problem to solve a problem, and I don't think that is an approach that we are going to take as the leadership of the South African police. We are going to face this problem head on, and I'm quite confident that with the support from National Treasury, we will be able to take the intake that I have just indicated of 10,000 in the next financial year. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Patrain. Thank, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Deputy Minister, with the lockdown regulations, having new trainings has been a challenge. However, what are the projected numbers of enrollment for 2021 and 2022? Thank you. Deputy Minister. Thank, thank you, Chair. As I did in trying to respond to the earlier comment, uh, for this financial year, we have taken 3,000 uh, intake. Of this 3,000, the breakdown is 2,000 from the public service because within SAPS, we have a section that is made of a public service act, and we also took 1,000 reservists into the training program. So all in all, it's 3,000 currently. Thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, thank you. Deputy Minister, third supplementary is by Honourable Majosi. Honourable Deputy Speaker, can I take the question on her behalf? Go ahead, Ndati. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker, and thank you, Deputy Minister, for your response. My question will relate to the capacity of SAPS to deal with safety and security issues. 
Now, Honorable Deputy Minister, given the utterances of the Police Commissioner recently that during the unrests, SAPS was understaffed and gathering intelligence was a weakness, and given that there are reports and information circulating currently that there is possible threats of looting on Friday and the weekend in the Peter Maritzburg and Durban areas, and SAPS, the different stations are calling meetings with community police forums and with the community organizations. Are you aware of this? And secondly, is, will SAPS be ready to deal with these kinds of issues if there is such incidences on the weekend as has been reported by intelligence? Thank you. Honorable uh, Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dep Deputy Speaker. Yes, indeed, uh, Deputy Speaker, the, the response in, for the previous uh, riots was left much. Uh, we could have done more. And out of that environment, we have learned our lessons. Uh, it, 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 it is true that uh, we are aware of the possibilities of what might happen because we are working very closely with the intelligence community. We are sharing information both with the state agency and the defense, and we are quite certain that uh, we will be able to respond should something like this uh, happen that we, we were not able to adequately respond to previously. From the different provinces, uh, our police officers are on standby, and if there is a need, to deploy extra police into areas that are affected will definitely do so. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Honorable Shembeni. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Minister, the 2019 report of the Civilian Secretariat for Police noted that just about 60% of the police were actually doing police work while 40% were logged in provincial and national headquarters. The report also noted that the police to citizen ratio was far lower than the recommended uh, by the UN for countries such as ours. What interventions have you made since then to ensure that more police are actually doing the policing instead of being confined Offices. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, uh, Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable, Honorable Speaker. Uh, the issue of uh, uh, the ratio of police to the citizens is a matter that we have been seized with. There are discussion, and in fact, the Civilian Secretariat has been given a mandate to do a study, a comparative study with other countries in the world to look at what their, their best practices are so that we can come and benchmark ourselves here in South Africa so that we, we find a ratio uh, of police to the citizen that is balanced and is in a manner that it will enable us to carry out our, our responsibilities. Of course, it is correct that over the years, uh, the number of police personnel has uh, declined. That's why we took a decision in 2019 that uh, we should, on a yearly basis, have an intake of 5,000 uh, trainees because this is the capacity of our colleges. And we have been doing this 
until we were disrupted by the COVID pandemic. However, we are going to start with the processes, as I have said earlier on, that uh, we intend to have an intake of 10,000 in the coming financial year, but this will only be possible with the support of National Treasury because we'll need additional funding for us to be able to increase, to increase this. Definitely the ratio of 60% of police being on the ground and 40% police, 40% at road office. That is a matter we have discussed and we have resolved that we need to have a higher percent of police officers on the ground. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Mishwe, on question 264 to the Minister of Police. Deputy Minister. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker. The South African Police Service, including the Directorate for Priority Crime Investigation, have secured the attendance of 18 accused persons for investigations. They are still appearing in court, and the court will pronounce on its findings. If the findings are that of conviction, a sanction will be meted out. The investigations are continuing and the possibility of additional arrests is not ruled out. And the court dates and relevant details are reflected in the table uh, 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 below. If you look at the table below, we have got uh, uh, what we might call a court date on table number one, uh, accused of Rifile Uratile Sidika, who is out on bail, and we also have Sibongiseni Crispen Kakani, who is also out on, uh, on bail. We also have Temba Gundwani Emmanuel Munesi, who is also out on bail. We also have Mutsamai Phineas Letualo, who is out on bail. We have Mbonginko Sikanyile, who is also out on bail. We have Dumiseni Zuma, who is still under uh, bail application. We also have Spitipiti Zamaswazi Zinlema Josi, who has been granted bail. We have Mboneni Clarence Tabane, who is also out on bail. We have Brian Ngizwe Mtunu, who is also on bail, and we have Bruce Nivot, who is also on bail. We have Busiso Mavoso, who is also out on bail. We have Savelo Msomi, who is also out on bail. We have Ike Tamsanga Kumalo, who has also been granted bail. And we have got an, a group of four individuals, Solanis Laule, Nklapo and DSYE and CS Zondo, who are also out in bail. And lastly, we have Matangu, who is also out on, on bail. So these are the details around some of the court dates of the individuals that are involved. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, thank you, Deputy Minister. Uh, Honorable Mishwe. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Deputy Minister. I would like to know whether the list that the minister 
has just read includes the 12 specific ones that the minister Begitala referred to. According to News 24 report of the 13th of July, the minister said that he had a list of 12 instigators of the July unrest. By the 4th October, Eyewitness News reported that the Hawks admitted that only seven of the 12 instigators that the minister spoke about had been arrested. The ACDP would like to know how far those investigations into the other 12, or sorry, into the other five alleged instigators are. Furthermore, I would like to know whether any political leaders and their motivation has been established in the investigations and how many of those arrested have appeared in court who are political leaders? Thank you. Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. All I can say is that uh, what I've presented here is what the police have been doing and the people who have been arrested and the details regarding uh, the, the people who are arrested, as I, I read out the list. And secondly, that the investigations are continuing and the possibility of additional arrests is not ruled out. So the investigations are continuing. If there is anybody who was involved who has not yet been arrested and police come to get that person, that person will be arrested. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Honorable uh, Jumad Peterson. Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Honorable Deputy Minister, what were the steps taken by the police in ensuring that there is peace and stability after the unrest? What is the plan moving forward to make sure that there is sufficient capacity and what lessons can we draw from the challenges we face from the unrest to strengthen the South African police services? I thank you. Thank you, Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, De Deputy, Deputy Speaker. Contingency plans have been put in place in areas uh, that were affected by the violence. The effective flow of crime intelligence have been secured and intelligence is communicated to all relevant stakeholders on a daily basis. And members from different provinces have been placed on standby should interprovincial deployments be required. To ensure that the current capacity is enhanced, POP members are receiving training in the SUBS Academy. Members who are already trained are exposed to refresher courses. It was evident from the July 2021 unrest situation that adequate numbers of POP members are required to do crowd management. Measures have been put in place to ensure that equipment and vehicles, including armored vehicles, are maintained and ready for operational deployment when the need arises. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Uh, Honorable A.G. Whitfield. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Honorable Deputy Minister, the looting and the violence which took place in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng 
have exposed SAPS's crime intelligence, its public order policing capabilities, among other deficiencies in the SAPS. The National Police Commission has this week admitted that SAPS failed due to severe manpower constraints, specifically in public order policing, where there are only 5,005 officers against a total need of 12,000. And he laid the blame squarely at budget cuts, which he says are the cause of the failure to respond and contain the violence. My question to you, Honourable Deputy Minister, is why you and your colleagues in the ANC continue to vote to support a budget in this House which undermines the SAPS's ability to respond to violent unrest? And will you take the House into our conf your confidence by sharing your plans to bolster public order policing over the medium term? I thank you. Thank you, Honourable Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. Definitely, yes. I, I, I said earlier on that uh, we intend to enroll 10,000 new intake, and a greater part of that will go to uh, public order policing. That is an area that we, we have ac accepted that uh, there has been a, a depletion, and it is our intention and determination to ensure that uh, we beef up that sector so that when we are confronted with issues where public order policing is needed, we have the ability and capacity to respond to. We have had a very meaningful engagement with the National Treasury, particularly the new minister, and indication has been made. That's why we are working on putting a submission that will make it possible for Treasury to increase our allocation, which is geared towards, among other things, to capacitate ourselves and, in particular, to deal with the weakness in, in the space of public order policing. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Honorable Sheikh Imam. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Minister, the lack of progress with what happened in July in terms of this looting and, and protest, is this do you believe as a result of the fact that the South African police services is compromised together with the intelligence? Are they compromised? Uh, because it appears to me that, you know, there is two sides to the story. One is that it may have been an insurrection and the other one is protest and looting. But whatever it is, there has been very little or no progress in getting to the root cause of what this was all about. Can you enlighten us to what do you believe is the problem with SAPS that we are not able to get to the root cause of this problem? Thank you, Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you, on Honorable uh, uh, Speaker. We, we have acceded that we could have done better. But I think the better coordination that is currently taking place within the security cluster is going to assist us tremendously going forward, including to respond to whatever challenge that uh, as a country we, we can face. We need better coordination and we are doing that and we should be able to respond uh, to issues of this nature. The issues of root causes around crimes, we have spoken to it earlier on saying that in the, at the center of criminality is poverty and underdevelopment that as a country we found ourselves in. And those are the issues that we need to deal with in order to remove 
what is the cause, what is the source <coughs> of uh, what creates people to act in a manner that is criminal. Give them food, make it possible for them to be able to look after themselves. Criminality will decline in the country. And that is the matter that we need as a country to deal with. But as far as our response and capabilities, I think we are ready now to deal with whatever situation that uh, can avail itself to ourselves. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. We now move to question 273, asked by uh, Honorable Q.R. Janji to the Minister of Justice and Correctional Services. Uh, Honorable Deputy Minister, I'm told you're taking charge of that question. Deputy Minister of Justice. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, now it's clear. Go ahead, Nat. All right. My apologies. I've muted. Uh, good afternoon, Deputy Speaker. As part of its annual performance plan commitment on justice modernization and digitization program, the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development is progressively introducing online services in domestic violence and maintenance matters to make them accessible online as well as faster and cheaper. These interventions also represent the department's commitment in implementing the presidential summit declaration against gender-based violence and femicide as well, and its national strategic plan. As far as domestic violence is concerned, in line with the objectives and aspirations of the Domestic Violence Amendment Bill, which this House recently passed, the department commenced with the development of a new module for online domestic violence applications for protection orders. And this is now being integrated within the existing modules for, domestic, for the Domestic Violence Integrated Case Management System and the e-judiciary website's workbench system. This integration is necessary to create a platform for improved stakeholder collaboration and data sharing when processing online ap applications for protection orders, and it's expected to be finalized before the end of this financial year. With this system, victims of domestic violence will be able to make online applications for protection orders, as well as receive such orders online. With regard to maintenance, uh, during this financial year, the department finalized phase one of the pilot program for the maintenance online applications, or MOLA for short, uh, that system, which focused on testing the system at a single site for walk-in applicants only. The program has now moved to the next phase, which is to open up the MOLA system to the wider for wider public access with the assistance of selected civil society organizations at the same site, which is at the Durban Point Branch Court. The aim is to test the operationalization of the system at a single site before it's rolled out on a larger scale for implementation. The ransomware attack has led to a delay in the pilot program's targeted progress for the second quarter. However, every endeavor will be taken to finalize it in this financial year. Then in the previous financial year, the department introduced an SNS notification system for both domestic violence and maintenance applications. Um, the SMS notifications system has been developed, deployed, and is ready for activate, activation for the court's utilization. What is outstanding is to educate the district court officials responsible for the process on the system and how it interfaces 
with their frontline work. As far as the second part of the question, in order to curb the spread of the malware, the department shut down all services. Uh, although this means that all our systems were down for various periods during the last two months, the impact was particularly felt on online services in the master's portal, which included uh, trusts online, the search functionality, deceased estates, and insolvency, also the search functionality with both of them. The departmental website was, however, used for information sharing on the website as it was available from the first week of recovery. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Janchi. Nkosi, uh, Deputy Speaker. Diabulela, Deputy Minister. I would have loved that you hear Dr. But uh, thank you for the comprehensive response you have given. But given the reality of uh, connectivity challenges and high cost of data, um, how is your department going to ensure that uh, women who stay in the remote areas, in rural areas, like Golinyenye, Sinobarana, Lady Frey, are not going to be left out in this very important process? How's it, JJ? Thanks, uh, uh, thanks, Honourable Janki. Uh, look, the, the problem of access uh, to uh, connectivity and, and data costs are a broader problem that, that government is, is tackling in terms of ensuring greater internet con connectivity and reducing data costs. Um, we would also hope that there will be facilities available at uh, different uh, government institutions where people can go in and make their applications. Another problem we've got is actually the connectivity uh, at particular courts, particularly courts that are connected via copper cable, um, and some don't have, the, the courts themselves don't have connectivity. A copper, copper cable, as you know, is a problem because it's prone to, to, uh, to theft, and it's, it's uh, a high risk to the delivery of services. So the department's currently reviewing its network infrastructure as part of the new VPN contract, and we will look at alternative means of providing connectivity. This includes upgrading copper to fiber where that's possible and replacing copper with microwave 3G and 4G where feasible. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Honorable G. Breitenbach. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Uh, Honourable Deputy Minister, the online services of the Department of Justice were effectively paralysed for weeks as a result of a ransomware attack. Members of the public and legal practitioners were unable to access any service of the master's offices, and vital services such as maintenance payments and mojo pay were disabled. Members of the magistracy and other employees paid by the department did not receive salaries, bond payments were not met, and tax and medical aid payments were not made court processes were significantly impacted. Is it correct that the IT service provider of the department had not been paid for two months prior to the attack? And what have you done, Mr. Minister, to ensure that the service provider is paid, that these services are reinstated, and that payments missed are brought up to date? Thank you. Uh, thanks, uh, Deputy Speaker and Honorable Breitenbach. Uh, look, the, the ransomware attack had a severe impact uh, on, the, on the functioning of, of the department, uh, that is without question. Um, I'm not so sure that, that the Honourable Breitenbach's 
uh, statistics are, are as correct. Uh, MajaPay, uh, luckily, um, most of the payments had been already processed for child maintenance um, before the attack happened. Um, the issue of magistrate salary payments, I'm aware of, of a couple of magistrates for a specific region, reason in the uh, one of the Western Cape clusters, one of the two Western Cl Cape clusters, or it was acting magistrates who had payment problems. Uh, but the issue is, is that um, this is something that we are, uh, the minister and, and I are very concerned about uh, and are getting reports uh, from the department. Uh, we're told that we're now at 98% um, uh, of the services are back up. Uh, that it is is uh, the 2% that, that's still having problems are back-end IT systems uh, such as operations management tools, network management tools, etc. And that it's ITSM, which is a tool for logging calls at the service desk, PASTEL, which is um, used for stating financial statements, and ECMS, uh, which is a system used by the, by the NPA. But we are wanting to, and uh, I know the Portfolio Committee is doing the same, uh, to know exactly what happened and why did it happen, and ensuring functionality, 100% functionality as soon as possible. Thank you. Uh, Honorable uh, Deputy Minister uh, John Jeffries, please give me a moment before you respond to a question. I may want to make an announcement or throw you out. Uh, do allow me that space. I want to have uh, the ability to call you to respond. It's an important part of the process so that uh, members know they must not speak when they are not invited to do so as a general practice. Those are the rules. Uh, and from the Deputy Minister of Justice, I expect nothing but compliance. Uh, the third supplementary is from Honorable Yako. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Um, Deputy Minister, um, while the online processing of protection orders is a good step, which it is, the reality is that for many women, especially black women, who are at the receiving end of violence, the online platform may not be a useful platform, leaving them dependent on police stations, and the magistrates' courts. So what collaborative work have you done with the Minister of Police and the department in general um, to make the processing of applying for protection orders less draining for victims of violence and abuse, especially for women who go to the actual police stations to seek for help after they've been abused? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Uh, Deputy Minister. Uh, thanks, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Can I respond? <laughs> I'm very scared about not being uh, compliant. Um, I, did, I invited you, Honorable Deputy uh, <laughs> um, No, thanks to, to Honorable Yako. Uh, look, currently people have to make applications at courts, uh, which are, uh, you know, what was one in every magisterial district, but that is still some considerable distance that people have to have to travel. So, yes, what you're saying is correct. A lot of people in rural areas, as Honorable Junkies had raised, don't have access to, um, to, to uh, the internet connectivity. 
Um, but at least this is a start. Those that do or those who have access uh, to places like uh, that the, the do, like, for example, a government Tusong Center would be able to, uh, to, to uh, make those applications. But it is something that we would need to continue exploring. Uh, how can we partner with civil society organizations or other bodies in rural areas who do have an internet connectivity, advice offices, community advice offices, for example, uh, to ensure that people can come in there and um, make online applications for protection orders. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Minister. Honorable uh, C. Team Simang. Honorable Deputy Speaker. Yes, sir. May I take the question on his behalf? You may, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Deputy Minister, thank you for your responses. Now, Honorable Minister, uh, Deputy Minister, you mentioned online services, and we know budget cuts have affected it. Now, and I think Honorable Janjis and yourself also spoke about the master's offices. Now, uh, I'm speaking from an informed basis, uh, Honorable Deputy Minister, in that my party headquarters offices are right next door to the uh, master's offices in Durban. And what I see sometimes there is shocking. Long queues of people dressed in black, coming from rural areas, standing there from morning to evening, wanted to be attended to, to get letters of executorship and other documentation. Sometimes it takes over a year, two years, to get letters of executorship. And I am told, rumors suggest, that if you pay a certain amount, you get it in a day. If you pay more, you get it, you know, it, it takes how much you pay to get those letters of executorship. So, for, Deputy Minister, I'd like to know, firstly, will you investigate these allegations and rumors by sending people in there just to see what is happening? And secondly, uh, no, what no, other systems uh, are going to use? Honorable Singh, Thank the you, time have, have expired. Thank and you, this Deputy is why we often say, ask your question first. And then ah. you can do the propaganda afterwards. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I wanted to give a background, Honorable Deputy Speaker. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> okay. Uh, Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thanks, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Um, let me just say that, that um, I'm aware of the, the problems at the Master's offices, not just in Durban, uh, but across the country. Uh, before the ransomware attack, uh, the problem was reduced staff due to COVID protocols at the master's offices. The master's office in Durban, in particular, was, was effective, affected. So there were fewer master's officials to serve members of the public. Uh, then we had the ransomware attack, which effectively shut down uh, the issuing of, of um, uh, um, ex uh, letters of executorship uh, in, in estates. Uh, we have had a number of meetings uh, with master's officials and particularly uh, members of the legal profession, attorneys. Uh, the staff are back to 100% capacity uh, and the systems are back online. Uh, the letters of executorship, et cetera, are being issued. Uh, as far as the allegations of, of corruption, uh, obviously they would, there's more scope for that uh, when there are huge queues, which hopefully are reducing. Uh, but I really would urge anyone who is being asked to pay a bribe to whoever, whether it's a, a security guard or a member of the master's office, uh, to report it uh, to us. And hopefully, Honorable Singh, uh, you could get them to come and report it at, you could get IFP members to report it at your, your offices as they're right next to the master's uh, offices in Etiquini. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Minister. 
Honorable Sheikh Imam asked question 261 to the Minister of Police. Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, this matter is currently under investigation to determine the cited allegations. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Castle Matali. The first, uh, Honorable Sheikh, it's your turn, your first turn, yeah. yeah. Thank you, De Deputy Speaker. Deputy Speaker, uh, 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 Deputy Minister, I refer to case number 223 of July 2021 that was opened at the Cambridge Police Station in East London, where the wife of the deceased has opened the case calling for an investigation into the death. I'm advised that the body was exhumed and a substance was found uh, on the uh, 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 after investigation and the autopsy has found that of course there was a substance found on General Mfazi's uh, and that his death had nothing to do with COVID-19 but may have been poisoned. Now could you tell us at what level is this investigation? When can we have a comprehensive report and have some finality on this matter? Deputy Minister. Yeah, I, I thought uh, the, the question uh, it says that uh, whether in view of allegations reported in the media that a certain person did not die of COVID, and in bracket, name and details finished. Uh, I thought there, there was sensitivity in the matter, that's why it was put the manner in which it, it, it has been. Uh, and uh, the, the question then raises something which I think is unfortunate. Uh, but I, I should respond the way I did, Deputy Speaker, that uh, the matter is currently under investigation to determine the cited allegations. And the member has also confirmed that uh, they are further investigation himself, but he, he, he wants us to give the details which are not there as we speak. So the matter is still under investigation, Deputy Speaker. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. The next supplementary question is asked by Honorable Siabi. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. And thanks very much, Deputy Minister. Do you by any chance have uh, an idea as to how long the investigation can take so that uh, we bring finality to the case? Thanks. Thanks, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, uh, Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. The matter is still the subject of an ongoing investigation. A date for a briefing has not yet been determined, and as soon as uh, there is finality on the case, we will definitely do so. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. The third supplementary is asked by Honorable Kerr Blanche. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Minister, the, the cause of death of this very senior government official must be determined as a matter of urgency. 
Um, if a crime was indeed committed, it may be regarded as a direct assault against the state. And obviously the charges need to be also added to the investigation um, if, it's, if it's a case of murder then. Uh, Deputy Minister, what hinders this investigation to f investigators to finalize the investigation and bring the perpetrators to book? Thank you. Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. There is nothing hindering the investigation. The investigation is ongoing. And when it is concluded, necessary steps will be taken. If there is criminality involved, anybody who has been involved in that, irrespective of their position, the law will take its course. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Majosi asked the last supplementary question on this question. Deputy Speaker. Yes. It's yes. me again, and I'm going to heed your advice. Question first. Uh, Honorable Deputy Minister, does the department or the ministry have any crack team to deal with investigations involving members of the security forces, which is SAPS, and organized crime? Because there are many reports, now comes the propaganda, there are many reports of such things taking place, Honorable Deputy Speaker, where organized crime and police work in collusion with each other. Simple example, if you look at an area where you want to send in the police to arrest drug dealers, you find that even before a person reports to the police station, the drug dealer knows that the police are on the way because the people from that police station and the drug dealer work in cahoots. So is there a special task team who your police don't even know that can deal with these kinds of collusion that's taking place and affecting safety and security? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Uh, Deputy Minister. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker, and thanks, uh, Honorable Member, for that question. I, I should say that uh, I, I agree with you, what you are saying, that uh, there are elements within the South African police who work with criminals, be they drug dealers or other criminals engaged in different activities. And from time to time, Honorable Deputy Speaker, we do make arrests of men and women in blue who engage in criminality who work with criminals. There are many examples that uh, we can give where such has happened. And even in a situation like this, if there are officers who are working with organized people who might have committed what can come out to be a criminal act at the end of the investigation, the law will take it because we do have capable men and women in blue who are police officers who are investigating and who are arresting criminals, irrespective of the uniform that they wear. If they find criminals in a blue uniform, they arrest that criminal, but being arrested by men and women in blue. So we do have the capacity and the capability within the South African police to deal with uh, cases of uh, this nature. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. The next question is 275, and it's asked by Honorable M. Mudise to the Minister of Home Affairs. 
Honorable Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Honorable Member, as a member of the Portfolio Committee of Home Affairs, I'm quite sure you have had the opportunity yesterday in the Portfolio Committee meeting to listen to a comprehensive and extensive report on the progress of border management authority. That report was extensively covered by business tag uh, this morning. But for the sake of the House, I will summarize the salient features. Both the Commissioner and Deputy Commissioner of Operations assumed duty on the 2nd of November 2021. The Deputy Commissioner of Operations, which is still outstanding, will assume duty next week on the 1st of December. And the following tasks have uh, already been performed. Firstly, the finalization of the implementation protocols between the Border Management Authority, the South African Police Service, SARS, and South African National Defense Force in terms of Section 25, 27 subsection 5 of the BMA Act of 2020. Secondly, the finalization of Section 97 proclamation. Honorable member, if you may remember, Section 97 of the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa provides for the president to transfer certain parts of an act from a different minister to the other, and secondly, to transfer certain functions of a particular act from one minister to the other. And, and that decision, that uh, pro pro program is on. Thirdly, the operationalization of the Border Technical Committee as required by Section 25, Subsection 1 of the BMA Act and the Interministerial Consultative Committee as required by Section 24, Subsection 1 of the same Act. As such, the Border Technical Committee has already met on the 26th of November and they met again for the second time on the 18th uh, of, 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 of this month. Uh, at this point, uh, we also want to update you on uh, the, 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 the other uh, happenings in the BMA. The BMA will be incubated in the Department of Home Affairs as one of the branches uh, uh, between now and the 31st of March, 2023. In this regard, it is envisaged that on the 1st of April, 2023, this occupation period will have come to an end. The BMA will be a standalone entity, meaning that it will be a Schedule 3A public entity uh, because uh, the listing of this public entity will happen in July, 2022, after certain things are done. Uh, thirdly, the BMA has already finalized its corporate identity which includes a local and uniforms for the border guards. However, discussions are underway with the Ministry of Trade, Industry and Competition, as well as the state heraldry in order to protect this logo. Thank you very much. I am informed that Honorable Musa Chabani, the chairperson, will take the supplementary question on behalf of uh, Honorable Munise. Thank you, Minister, for the comprehensive response. We know that the filling of senior position in the BMA will be critical in this transition. Can the Minister outline the, time, the timelines of when the border patrols and transfer of staff to the agency are expected to be completed, including the discussion with the organized labor? Thank you. Honorable Minister. 
chairperson, said, the appointment of certain members of staff like the CFO, chief director operations, etc., are required for listing of the public entity. And they will happen between now and July next year. I think there will be about five appointments that will be made. Without those appointments, we won't be allowed to list. As to the issue of uh, when do we, the border guards, when are they inaugurated or when they start their work, that matter is going to be discussed, as I said, when the Inter-Ministerial Committee on Border Management Authority meets this Friday. That means in two days' time. And I want to remind you, many, uh, uh, Honorable Member, that uh, while ministerial committees are chosen by the president, this one is chosen by an act, the ministers. In other words, it's a statutory body by an act of parliament that, that committees must meet and discuss these issues and the committees meeting for the first time this Friday. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next supplementary question is by Honorable F.J. Mulder. Thank you, Honorable Deputy uh, Speaker. Um, with reference to a long ongoing unfortunate situation on the South African border with Namibia in the Palamouth region, in the Northern Cape as example, where the border is on the Namibian side of the Orange River, and it is well known fact that illegal immigration and smuggling of goods and stock is a daily occurrence and the escalating attacks on tourists on the Orange River, which is technically in the South African territory, and considering that the designated officials of the Department for Home Affairs for that specific region do not even bother to respond in any way to inquiries and concerns, what commitments or assurance can the Honorable Minister give the House that the citizens of both South Africa and Namibia, that the implementation of the Border Management Authority will address this unacceptable negligence of mandate of the department urgently and effectively. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Honorable Minister. Honorable Miller, uh, that is quite unfortunate because the, the border between us and, and, and Namibia, same as the border between us and Botswana, are the least, least problematic. We've got very, very few problems on that border. Out of the 4,772 kilometers of land border, 1,500 is between us and Botswana, and there are very few problems there. The other between us in Namibia, I, if I'm not mistaken, is about 950 kilometers, but I know it's 900 something. It's the third longest, but there are very, very few uh, problems. It's the third longest after Lesotho. Now, the issues you are mentioning are unfortunate, but I'll refer them urgently to the Border Management Authority because that is exactly why they are there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, the next one is by Honorable L. L. van der Merve. Bye, Ranke, for a young speaker. Um, Minister, in the absence of the BMA becoming operational anytime soon, the reality is that we face a legal immigration crisis. Your department has no idea how many illegal migrants are within the borders of South Africa. Your immigration inspectorate is understaffed and ineffective, nor do you know how many economic migrants are within our borders having entered claiming asylum. 
Considering that every day we are confronted with reports on child trafficking, cross-border crimes, corruption at our borders, and South Africans expressing concern that illegal migrants occupy jobs in a variety of sectors, my question, Honorable Minister, does your department have any plan to deal with the millions of illegal migrants already within our borders, including those who have claimed asylum but are in fact economic migrants? And what has been the progress with regards to the interministerial committee, which you chair, that looking that is looking into illegal migration, which was set up over two years ago? If you can give us some feedback in that regard. Thank you, Honourable Minister, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable Member, a lot of things, yes, are happening. One of them, uh, Honourable Van der Merwe, you have provided an answer to yourself. The President promised this parliament and he did so. That is going to appoint an interministerial committee on migration, which is co-chaired uh, by the Minister of Employment and Labor and myself. We have had several meetings between myself and him and the other ministers in the interministerial committee. We have already uh, uh, approached international organizations like International Labor Organization to help us one of them is to help us provide a bid that will provide quotas of the number in industries, of the number of foreign nationals that can be hired by any industry. We needed a lot of this advice because we know we have got a type of constitution that is open to many things, and we don't want to be found on the wrong side of the constitution. The interministerial committee reported to the cabinet committee on trade and industry because some of the issues will affect trade. Very soon, it will be given the report to the parliament and quite a number of the things will be implemented. Secondly, honorable member, as I have said, the border management authority is going to be helping on most of these things because it will be having a special, uh, I mean, an additional, additional hands in the form of border guards. For, for now, yesterday, honorable member, and I believe you are also a member of this committee, they were also showing the interim measures that will be taken or that are being planned for, for, for this period of the festive season. Lastly, honorable member, on the issue of the backlog of asylum seekers in South Africa, we started occurring from 2009 when Zimbabwe collapsed. You are aware that we launched a project uh, with the United Nations High Commissioner for, for Refugees, whereby they donated 147 million rand to hire, help hire 36 extra lawyers, because at the moment, the lawyers who are looking at the appeals of people who are applying for asylum were only few, were only about five. Now we have hired 36 more. They have already started work. They are busy reviewing all the applications of asylum seekers, meaning some will be accepted, others will be rejected, and people will be sent back home. Those are some of the things that are happening. Thank you very much. You, uh, the last supplementary question here is Honorable String. Uh, Honorable Monsieur? Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Oh, okay, you're back there. Yeah. Go ahead, Nat. Honorable String? Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Minister, the Department of Home Affairs is considered to be a custodian, protector, and verifier of the identity and status of citizens and other persons in the Republic of South Africa. Now, how and to what extent will the Border Management Authority be able to facilitate trade, particularly in the light of the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement? 
as well simultaneously as plugging the holes which result in illegal border activity, including human trafficking and drug smuggling, amongst others. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Minister. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable Member, if you look at the objectives of why the Border Management Authority is going to establish, it's going to do all those things you are saying, except that it won't facilitate trade, but it will facilitate movement of goods between countries to make sure that uh, there's free trade, including the Africa Continental uh, uh, Free Trade Agreement. So the Border Management Authority will make sure that those things happen in a smooth way, and also that there is no uh, corruption, there is no counterfeit goods, uh, there's no smuggling of goods. That's basically the work of the Border Management Authority. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, honorable members. Uh, we move to question 298, asked by Honorable On to the Minister of Justice and Correctional Services. Uh, Honorable Deputy Minister, you are still on duty. Uh, thanks, Honorable Deputy Speaker. I just want to start by just giving some background uh, to the issue uh, for members of the public. The Commission, State Capture Commission, was appointed to investigate allegations of state capture, corruption and fraud in the public sector, including organs of state. The investigating directorate of the NPA was established in respect of identified offences, which include offences or cr criminal or unlawful activities arising from the work of the Commission. There is therefore by definition an overlap in the areas being dealt with by both the Commission and the investigating directorate. The original Regulation 11 prohibited the sharing of information and resources between the Commission and the NPA by means of a final report, uh, other than by means of a final report delivered by the chairperson of the Commission to the President. So this gave rise to a duplication of effort and a number of other practical difficulties, such as witnesses being approached by both the Independent Directorate or ID and the Commission for statements. Um, the regulation was also seen as an impediment to the appointment of personnel uh, from the Commission to assist the ID in, uh, investigations. That regulation uh, 11 was amended on the 28th of July last year, and it now allows for the sharing of information, records and documents between the Commission and law enforcement agencies, and the employment of Commission staff post their contract with the Commission. Shortly after the amendment, on the 7th of August, the NPA and the Commission concluded a protocol to regulate the flow of information between the two parties to ensure that the legal requirements of each are not prejudiced by such a collaborative effort. In particular, the protocol was aimed at preserving the chain of evidence for purposes of a criminal trial. And this amendment made it possible for the ID to access evidence preserved by the Commission in terms of the NPA statutory powers. In some cases, this has meant that evidence such as cell phone records and bank records received at the start of the Commission's work in 2019, which may no longer be available from the service providers, but that has been preserved and may be handed over to law enforcement. The Commission and the ID have collaborated on the authentication of digital evidence procured by the Commission, which will be adduced as part of criminal trials conducted by the Investigating Directorate. Since the amendment of the regulations, the NPA's investigating directorate has commenced the following criminal prosecutions, State versus Panday in KZN, State versus Vincent, Vincent Smith in Palm Ridge, State versus Angelo Egrizi, also Palm Ridge, 
State versus Tibeta and others in the Bloemfontein Regional Court and State versus Mudley. The application and issue of arrest warrants and red notices in respect of Indian nationals are Nath, A. Jain, R. Bhatt, and J. Parekh, as well as arrest warrants in respect of Atul Gupta, Rajesh Gupta, Shatali Gupta, and Arti Gupta. Red notices and extradition requests are still pending. The amendments have also resulted in the following asset forfeiture orders, 1.4, a 1.4 billion asset forfeiture order handed down on the 21st of July this year and confirmed in respect of a number of accused and entities involved in corruption at ESCOM. In respect of Vincent Smith, a restraint order to the value of 46 million rand was handed down in February this year and confirmed in August this year. And in July 2021, this year, an asset forfeiture order was handed down, which resulted in the restraint of 44.5 million in immovable property and an aircraft valued at 3 million US dollars uh, belonging to Island Site Investments, which is a company owned by the Gupta family, as well as assets worth 16 million uh, owned by Iqbal Sharma and his wife. The IDs also assisted ESCOM recovering 1.6 billion from ABB ZAPTY Limited in December last year and in Transnet recovering 700 million. Four further investigations have been authorized by the ID involving multinational corporations identified as complicit in corrupt activities through the work of the commissions. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Hon. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Minister, that in, in your words would mean six prosecutions after the Zonda Commission uh, listened for two years to evidence and information about corruption. At the time, these regulations were held as a game changer, but the reality is that very little has changed on the back of these amendments. The NPA this year again failed to achieve more or less all of the targets it set itself in respect of corruption-related prosecutions despite the fact that it lowered these targets significantly since you assumed office in 2019. Freezing orders amounted to only 611 million round down uh, in the past financial year, down from 1.6 billion in the previous year. And the official statistics says that in the past two years, in each one of those years, only 3 million rand was recovered from prosecution of corruption-related offences. Minister, we know that you always sidestep questions about the performance of the NPA with the argument that you don't want to be accused of political interference and want to preserve the independence of the NPA. But the Constitution burdened you with fin final responsibility for the NPA, and Section 33.2 of the NPA Act gives you the right and the duty to ask for reports and, and reasons for decisions taken by any director of the NPA. With this in mind, the question is, have you used those powers to scrutinize the poor performance of the NPA in dealing with corruption-related prosecutions? If so, what have you learned? If not, why must South Africans not conclude that your failure to make use of your constitutional powers in exercising final responsibility for the NPA is yet another piece of evidence that this government's actions in fighting corruption is nothing more than talk? Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honourable Deputy Minister. Thanks, Deputy Speaker. Um, look, as as uh, you know, the Honourable Horn is a member of the Portfolio Committee. The NPA come to the Portfolio Committee, so I'm 
sure you would have had the, the opportunity to ask those questions there. The NPA provides quarterly reports uh, to the, the minister and myself uh, on its performance. And um, those reports are questioned uh, either on the memoranda themselves or in, in terms of further follow-up meetings. Uh, your statistics, well, I think it's understandable. You're trying to promote a particular political objective here. Um, but as you'd heard from the statistics I'd given as far as assets forfeitures for this financial year, uh, that a lot has improved with that. A 1.4 billion order on the 21st of July uh, in particular, and a further one um, uh, that, I, that I also mentioned uh, in, in my input. So uh, the other aspect I think to mention is that a lot of these, these, these matters are extremely complicated, uh, involving persons in other countries, involving foreign governments, also investigating crimes that have, have taken place. Uh, so there's also a need for cooperation with, with, with foreign governments. Uh, so it's, it's, not, uh, it's not an easy thing to bring a prosecution one needs all one's ducks in a row. Uh, definitely, the amendment to these regulations has facilitated uh, the ability of the independent investigating directorate uh, to investigate matters, and they are moving forward. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Um, the next supplementary question is asked by Honorable N.H. Maseko Jele. Honorable Deputy Speaker, it's uh, URG, I'll, I'll take the follow-up on behalf of Honorable Jele. Thank if you very you much, if because allowed. I was thinking I'm getting crazy now. Yeah, no, thank you, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Okay. Thank you, Deputy Minister, for that uh, response. Just quickly, when can the country therefore expect other matters to be enrolled and prosecutions to take place? Deputy Minister. Uh, thanks, Deputy Speaker. Um, the main response that I gave provided details of the cases that have already been enrolled in court. Any subsequent cases will be made public as and when they're enrolled for prosecution. That said, the focus on capacitation in the National Prosecuting Authority, including in key leadership positions and in the in investigating directorate, means that, as mentioned in Parliament, the investigating directorate is now much better placed to make significant progress in certain cases. Much work is also being done to capacitate and prioritize the Specialized Commercial Crime Unit and the Assets Forfeiture Unit in the NPA. The success in these areas largely depends on capacity and skills in the DPCI or the Hawks, which is still seriously understaffed and underskilled. NPA units and the DPCI are working together to prioritize the impact in the context of the anti-corruption task team. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Deputy Minister. The next question is asked by Honorable Yako. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Deputy Minister. Minister, there is a perception that the Commission, and indeed the NPA, is only after people who are not part of the inner circle of the President. This may or may not be true, but what explanation can you give for the failure of the NPA to prosecute Mr. Mandashe and Ms. Mukonyane, who were directly fingered as beneficiaries of Posasa corruption, while selectively 
prosecuting people like Vincent Smith, a lower-ranking politician? Why is the evidence of Lucky Montana, Matejo Koko, and others not being used to pursue corruption charges against those closer to the president? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thanks, Deputy Speaker. Look, the, the commission uh, is independent, uh, headed by the Deputy Chief, Chief Justice. Obviously, people in opposition to the commission want to try and tarnish it. As far as the NPA investigations, uh, that is up to, to them. Uh, they do not get told by the president or the minister who to prosecute or not to prosecute. And as I had said, a lot of these investigations or most of the investigations are still ongoing and results can be expected if people have a case to answer. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Swart. You are asking the next. So thank you, Deputy Speaker, Honorable Deputy Minister. The ACDP shares concerns about the relatively slow pace of the NPA in prosecuting state capture-related prosecutions and missing certain targets for the previous financial year. While the situation of asset forfeiture has, as you correctly pointed out, improved, we are still concerned about the slow pace. However, we agree that the matters are extremely complex and require deep forensic investigations, and so we welcome the Regulation 11 Amendment, and we look forward to further prosecutions in this regard. As far as cooperation with foreign governments is concerned, it seems that the extradition of the Gupta family is being delayed by the UAE. What, Honorable Deputy Minister, has been done to expedite this matter, when, and when is it expected that this process of extradition will be finalized? Thank you. Thank you. Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thanks, uh, Deputy Speaker, and thanks, Honorable Swart, for that more uh, reasoned or informed um, position that you put forward. Uh, look, I, 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 there's a lot of detail um, that really the NPA should give on the extradition. Uh, just to say that the extradition treaty with the United Emirate, Arab Emirates came into effect um, only uh, recently. Uh, and uh, the NPA um, uh, has applied um, uh, for four arrest warrants. Um, they also applied for, excuse me, international red notices to be issued in respect of, of um, the accused that I mentioned both in India and in the UAE. Um, and... Um, they have received communication from Interpol that members of the Gupta family are challenging the issue of the red notices. Uh, the consequence of this challenge is that the red notices were not issued for the UAE-based accused. Um, so the, the, let me just say um, the, 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 the extradition is in process, uh, but there's a number of legal complexities that have to be overcome. Uh, not least that this uh, that the extradition agreement with the UAE only came into effect uh, earlier this year. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, thank you. We now move to question 306, asked by Honorable Yako to the Minister of Justice and Correctional Services. Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. 
In terms of our constitution, the Judicial Services Commission comprises of members from various sectors, such as the judiciary, the legal fraternity, and members of parliament under the chairpersonship of the Chief Justice. It's a, it was a deliberate decision by the drafters of our constitution to structure the JSC that way so as to preserve its independence from undue influence. The JSC, like all organs of state, is bound to act in accordance with the Constitution and the values of accountability, responsiveness, and openness. It should be noted um, that any person or institution who is aggrieved or of the view that legal or administrative processes were irregular or flawed may approach a court to take a matter on review. The right to review is a basic right in our constitutional democracy and part of the rule of law. And it's in fact a right uh, which the EFF itself has exercised on many occasions. Members of civil society have the very same right to approach any court to take matters on review. Judicial independence is fundamental to democracy and the manner in which judges are appointed is crucial to the independence of the judiciary. By stipulating clear procedures to be followed in their appointment, the Constitution ensures that appointments are made in a transparent manner, interviews are open to the public, and the JSC now live streams the interviews in order to further facilitate access. The independence of the JSC is also underscored by the Commission having a separate budget within the Office of the Chief Justice. We are of the view that the constitutional provisions and JSC procedures ensure the JSC's independence in its approach to the appointment of judges. The provisions of section 174 of the constitution dealing with the appointment of judges, the procedure of the JSC as adopted in 2018, and the criteria on the appointment of judges adopted by the JSC in 2010 should address any concerns that relate to the appointment of judges and to safeguard the independence of the JSC in this regard. That being said, criteria and processes can always be improved and independence even further enhanced. Furthermore, challenges can be avoided by ensuring that conduct complained of in past interviews is not repeated and that all processes meet the requisite constitutional standards. It should also be stressed that JSC interviews are not the appropriate forum to deal with complaints against judges, nor are they the place for personal grudges or unwarranted political attacks against the judiciary. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honourable Deputy Minister. I will now recognise the Honourable Yako, who will ask the first supplementary question. Thank you very much, Mr. Chief. Um, Deputy Minister, for the judiciary to maintain its credibility as its final arbiter of legal matters in the country, it needs to be free of the control of lobbyists. Well-funded organisations such as the CASAC, the Freedom Under Law, the Helen Sussman Foundation, and other right-wing formations are tacitly ruling the country via the courts and now interfering in the appointment of judges. What danger does the proliferation of the grouping pose to our democracy? And what can be done to insulate our judiciary from capture by these entities? Thank you. The Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you, House Chairperson. Look, um, as I had said in, in the reply, uh, everybody has the right to take matters on review. And definitely uh, the economic freedom fighters, amongst others, the DA, uh, do that. I'm not entirely sure where the EFF gets its money from for all these, these court cases. 
Um, but that's your right. It's not. It's 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 your right, and it's the right of any uh, person in South Africa to do that. So I find it difficult to uh, see. I think uh, the honourable member is trying to cast political aspersions, but I find it difficult to see that people bringing review applications to the courts are trying to capture the courts. Uh, that doesn't make make sense. If there is a basis for review application. Uh, the court will will rule um, in favour of that application. Um, things can be appealed at to higher courts. So I don't really see why bringing matters to court uh, is effectively interfering with the independence of the judiciary and capturing the judiciary. Uh, with the honourable member, I know I'm not asked, allowed to ask members questions, but would the honourable member or say that that the EFF bringing cases on review? Is is capturing the courts or capturing judicial processes? No, I don't think so. They're right. I'm very willing to answer that question. Honourable Member, I don't know why the Deputy Minister provoked you by asking you a question. The rules doesn't allow for that. I now recognise Honourable Magwanisha. Thank you very much, House Chairperson, Honourable Deputy Minister. Arising from your response, it is quite clear that the honorable member who asked the question is moving from a mistaken view that believes that the JSC is an entity of the department. If you do what the member suggests, will you not be accused of acting in a manner that is inconsistent with chapter eight of the constitution? Thank you. Honourable Deputy Minister, that was a statement from the member. Do you wish to reply? No, it was a question, uh, House Chair. Will we not be accused of, of doing what we're being accused of doing? I think it was. Look, I, I'm not sure what the Honourable Yaku is wanting us to do to stop review applications. Uh, that would be interfering with constitutional rights. Uh, so that is not uh, appropriate. And yes, uh, as the Honourable chair of the Portfolio Committee of Justice and Correctional Services has said, the JSC is an independent institution headed by the Chief Justice. Um, in fact, uh, their spokesperson is, is a member of, of uh, the Honorable Yarko's party, um, but he speaks on behalf of the JSC as spokesperson uh, when there's a need, the need arises uh, for that. But we can't stop review applications. Thank you, House Chair. Thank you, Honourable Deputy Minister. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Breitenbach. Thank you, Honourable House Chairperson. Uh, Deputy Minister, is it still the policy of government to require that candidates for the bench be recommended to the JSC by the Thule House Cater Deployment Committee as per the evidence of the President? Or does government now accept that the function of the JSC is to independently identify candidates for judicial office? who are suitably qualified, fit and proper lawyers who will, with integrity, independence and impartiality, uphold the values of the Constitution and the rule of law, and not those of the NDR. Thank you. The Honourable Deputy Minister. Uh, thanks, uh, House Chairperson. Um, as the Honourable Breitenbach knows, anyone can apply that the JSC will put out adverts for the vacancies, um, and I think those vacancies are put up by, by the judiciary themselves, led by the Chief Justice. So it's open adverts. Uh, anyone can apply. Uh, the shortlisting is then done by, by a team within the JSC. 
Um, particular parties, um, particular individuals on the commission may have views. Uh, the the uh, I'm sure, Honourable Breitenbach, when you were there, you would have your own views as to who should be appointed or not. But it is an open and transparent uh, process uh, that is that is being followed, and then a secret ballot vote uh, that is taken uh, to decide on who the recommended candidates are. So. Um, Whatever anyone does and discusses, uh, it is an open and transparent process and a secret ballot at the end of it. Thank you, last Chair. Thank you. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Nsi Mang. Honourable Chairperson, can I take the question on his behalf? Yes, you may. I think some have forgotten that Parliament has started already. Uh, we are in the fourth term. Uh, thank you, Honourable Chairperson. Thank you, Deputy Minister, for your response. I, I think you've underscored the, 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 the right of anybody to approach the courts if they are aggrieved. And that right cannot be denied. However, having said that, Honourable Minister, there are always winners and losers. If a matter goes to court on the matter of a principle, I think then it should come before court. But when a certain individual doesn't make the grade or is not recommended, uh, then it casts a bit of doubt on the credibility of matters being taken to court. But, but having said that, you are quite right, I'm on the JSC for over 10 years as a commissioner now, and we always vote on an individual basis. There is a certain degree of lobbying, but we vote on an individual basis, and that's something I'm very proud of in the JSC. My question to you, Honourable Deputy Minister, would be, there is criticism sometimes of us not having a set of standard questions for every candidate. Now, I want to say that is not possible because the questions for the candidate, even here in Parliament when we do interviews, will depend on the public submissions that you've received, on, on, on the, the CV of the candidate. What is your view on a standard set of questions? Because I don't agree on that, uh, uh, with that system. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Singh, on behalf of the Honorable Nsima. Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thanks, uh, House Chair, and um, I notice that the Honourable Singh seems to be having being multiple people uh, today, I, I think because of uh, online challenges. Look, I, I think that is something for the, the JSC to deliberate on. You've, you've, Honourable Singh, expressed a view. In the Magistrates Commission with the interviews, I think there is more of a standard set of questions um, the, uh, that, that get asked of the, the applicants by the interviewing panel for the Magistrates Commission. Um, but I think it's something that, uh, that the JSC and in fact South Africa as a whole uh, should deliberate on as to how can this, this process for appointing judges uh, be improved. Uh, because it is live streamed, everyone can has the opportunity to see what goes on in those interviews and what is being asked. Thank you, House Chair. Thank you, Honourable Deputy Minister. Honourable Members, question number 278 has been asked by the Honourable Zungu to the Minister of International Relations and Cooperation. The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Um, the response to the question is that the matter of Sudan uh, is addressed in a number of multilateral and bilateral fora that South Africa belongs to. 
We've had occasion to discuss Sudan in the context of the UN system, as well as other uh, fora such as the African Union uh, and various bodies. With regard to uh, actions with respect to support to the country, in the various fora, as well as a multilateral grouping of countries that are called Friends of Sudan, South Africa has always offered that it would provide experts to Sudan to assist in the transitional process, particularly in the framing of constitutional documents and other statutes that would assist the country in its uh, post-conflict reconstruction uh, process. We have agreed with the Peace and Security uh, Commission of the African Union in its strong condemnation of the military coup, and we've rejected all unconstitutional change uh, in Sudan. Uh, the uh, members would be aware that the uh, commission decided to suspend Sudan from all AU activities at the instance of the coup until there's the restoration of a civilian-led transitional authority. This was well in line with the Charter of the African Union, and we fully support the decisions of the AU in this regard. We've called uh, for the return of a civilian-led government. Uh, Parliament would be aware that two days ago, uh, Prime Minister Hamdok uh, has been sworn in once more as Prime Minister. He has indicated that uh, part of the agreements he has reached with the military council is the creation and appointment of a civilian uh, a government and that the military would not have a, a part uh, in, in the government. We are keeping a close eye on developments in Sudan. And as I've said, we remain ready to support the people of Sudan as they make the preparations toward a fully fledged democracy that subsists under a constitutional uh, uh, law regime. Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The first supplementary question will now be asked by the Honorable Zungu. Thank you, Chairperson. Welcome to the report for the NA uh, Minister. My question is this, and what are the relevant details of the further engagement and intervention that the, the, the government will provide in order to ensure the, the peace and stability in Sudan? Thank you, Chairperson. The Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. Uh, As I've said, we will continue to engage in the context of the African Union. We will also directly engage uh, with the leadership uh, in Sudan. We are especially relieved at the return of Prime Minister Hamdok, as we've had uh, as we have had very good uh, contact with Prime Minister uh, Hamdok and members of his cabinet. We also have had support through South African NGOs that uh, are experts in uh, negotiations. They have worked closely with members of the Transitional Council, particularly the civilian authorities, to support them in the manner that I've indicated of preparing for the post-conflict 
uh, process and systems uh, in Sudan. Our embassy is fully uh, engaged with the authorities uh, in that country, and we will maintain uh, the established contact and ensure that South Africa works closely with the people and government of Sudan to support them as they build a sustained democracy. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Chetty. Thank you, Chair. Honorable Minister, Sudan is on the brink of civil war and retrogressing. And as is the case previously, we, South Africa, are far too eager to interfere in the affairs outside of South Africa for reasons best known to us all. Yet when similar incidents play out within Africa, we are hesitant, reluctant, and at times oblivious to what is happening. Just as we are eager to proclaim our assistance in the Sudan matter, Honorable Minister, can you explain the reason or reasons for us procrastinating when it comes to offering assistance to countries in Africa, like Cabo de Gaulle and Mozambique? And if we do assist, what assistance is offered to countries in Africa facing similar issues as Sudan? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you to, to the Honourable Chetty. Um, uh, in response to a question earlier uh, today, uh, Chairperson, I indicated to the Honourable Members that South Africa is part of FAMIM, that is the SADC mission in Mozambique. Cabo Delgado is in Mozambique. Several SADC countries have made troops available to support the government and the defense force of Mozambique in combating the extremists uh, that have attacked that country. South Africa is fully engaged on issues on the African continent. We're part of MONUSCO uh, in the DRC, uh, particularly in Eastern DRC, where there are often incursions uh, and battles uh, with rebel uh, forces. We're part of the Quick Reaction Force as part of SAMIM in Mozambique. Uh, we provide uh, support through training, humanitarian assistance, and other forms of support to South Sudan. So it is not uh, accurate to say that uh, the government is oblivious or not involved in matters uh, that are relevant or, or that are uh, conflict-ridden on the African continent. We were the first to uh, send envoys to Ethiopia in an attempt to persuade the leaders of Ethiopia that conflict would not suit uh, uh, the uh, cohesion that is necessary to that uh, wonderful country of the continent. And uh, we wish that uh, the seasoned envoys that we had uh, uh, deployed would have been listened to. But it is not accurate at all to refer to South Africa as being oblivious or uninvolved. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Msani. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, Minister, the Sudanese military has been at the soul of political power since its independence in 1956, staging a coup after a coup. And African countries are becoming army fields of former colonizers where currently in, in Sudan, the Americans are saying they condemn the, the coup and Russia is also willing to shield the military. So this is really becoming a problem because of the resources in Africa. Africa, Minister, has had 
coups in countries, three countries in 2021, and three attempted coups in 2021 alone. Minister, why is the AU not interested in strengthening the African Union standby force and also establish an African military that will bring peace in all these countries that are continuously under the coup in the African continent. Because to say that uh, individual countries must help these countries with the coups is not going to assist. We need an African military and we need to strengthen the African Union standby force. Thank you, uh, Chairperson. The Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson. Um, I, I would not agree with the notion of an African army at this point. I don't think Africa has achieved the level of integration that would allow it to be able uh, to form and deploy uh, one uh, unified army. Hence, the standby force is extremely important. And the African Union is, of course, through its various member states, involved in a number of missions along with the United Nations in various countries, not just in Africa, uh, but other parts uh, of the world. Uh, the standby force uh, would, of course, require uh, significant resources from the continent, and uh, efforts are made uh, to provide support where the African Union has an ability to provide such support. I've been uh, very pleased that uh, the uh, fund uh, uh, the peace fund that was established by the African Union has seen several country mem uh, member states of the AU make their full contributions. And as Samim uh, in Mozambique, uh, uh, we are approaching or have approached the Peace and Security Commission of the African Union to provide funding to Samim utilizing that fund. So I think Africa uh, is doing the best that it can. It is true that it has rendered uh, 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 an attractive uh, uh, region for countries that have the intent to abuse its resources. But what is vital is that countries must build sufficient intelligence, security, and defense capability to be able to withstand any approach by any rebel intent on stealing uh, their mineral resources. And what is absolutely critical is the focus South Africa has, that we must entrench peace, democracy, and security in all countries on the African continent, and that even as parliamentarians, we should work with parliamentarians in other African countries to assist them in building robust democracies that can withstand any actors or elements that seek to destabilize countries on the continent. So all of us have a role to play, and South Africa is certainly doing what it can to execute that function. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable M. Schlengwa. Um, thank you very much, Honorable House Chair. Um, Honorable Minister, um, to the earlier point um, about the uh, insurrection in July, and the point I made about this being the first time in South Africa, I fully agree with you, of course, about the atrocities of apartheid 
Um, but I meant it in the context that in a post-democratic South Africa, it's the first time we had witnessed something of the sort. And I hope that clarifies um, that particular point. So we are on the same page on that one. Minister, I think the issues you have highlighted in the broad strokes that you have about South Africa's involvement and participation in the multi-fora and so far as the problems besetting the continent are concerned and the lack of stability and the coups and so on is well taken. But I think here specifically, would one would want to know the exact details of South Africa's proposals to bring about stability in Sudan. We noted um, the statement of condemnation that you issued when the prime minister was taken under house arrest in Sudan, and now, of course, is back at work. But the fragility remains, of course, and a lot is yet to be seen. So really specifically, Minister, what are the action steps to bring about stability in Sudan? Because this is now a long and perennial headache which we have been beset, and what advices are you giving and guidance are you giving to the multiple um, bodies we are participating in to deal with this question? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson. I think the uh, first point I wish to make is that stability, democracy and peace are largely an instance of what the national actors do and not what external forces do. So as South Africa, we would not be able to impose peace and democracy. We can work with the Sudanese stakeholders in all the categories to assist them in engaging in processes successfully that lead to a kind, an outcome that is similar to our own negotiated outcome of a constitution, of functioning democratic institutions, of an electoral process that enjoys wide legitimacy. These are the offers we have made to Sudan, and we are prepared to put South African resources to support that process. This would mean being able to speak to each category of stakeholder because they are divided, and this is work we were already doing. We had had uh, two workshops in South Africa involving different components of the Transitional Council. That work has now been torn apart by the coup uh, that occurred uh, a few months ago. So we will continue to say to the interlocutors in Sudan, South Africa stands ready to assist because we've been fortunate in the 27 years to establish functioning public institutions, to write a constitution that has withstood many, many challenges and to create democratic institutions that actually function in the interest of the people of a country. So it is the Sudanese who must lead because it was South Africans who led in creating their stability, their democracy. Hence, we are ready to be of assistance, but we are unable to impose with out the full participation and active uh, work of the various uh, protagonists in, in Sudan. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Question number 280 has been asked by the Honourable Hendricks to the Minister of Home Affairs. The Minister. The Honourable Minister. Yes, I'm here. Okay. 
Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Member. Uh, Honorable Member, the issue of exacting some form of sanctions uh, in one form or the other is not the purview of the Department of Home Affairs. Other departments uh, like DERCO will have to have a big say because uh, this is related to relations with another country. Uh, in the case of cultural boycotts, the Department of Arts and Culture will obviously lead the way uh, in this regard, but uh, as I'm saying, DERCO will have to have a big say on it. Now, on the question of government position, when if you passport to, to, uh, to travel to cultural events in Israel, I wish to state as follows. The Department of Home Affairs does not issue a passport to, uh, for an individual to any destination in particular. The department issues a passport to any South African who qualify to have such a passport. As to where the, the South African will travel to with that particular passport is the prerogative of the passport holder. It is also the prerogative of the receiving country, whether they allow that person within their territory or not. Uh, and the honorable member also section 21, subsection four of the constitution of the Republic of South Africa guarantees the right of every citizen to a passport to give effect to this right. Parliament passed the South African Passport and Travel Document Act 94, Act number four of 1994, in terms of which the department issues passports to all South African adult citizens. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Hendricks. Uh, thank you very much, Honorable House Chair. Does the Minister agree that this delays our real freedom? President Mandela said South Africa will never be free if Palestine is not free. And will the respected Minister approach the President for an executive order preventing Miss South Africa from going to Israel? Thank you. I like the shirt. I like the shirt. The Honourable Minister. Honourable Member, uh, uh, the issue of whether there ought to be sanctions against Israel or whether we need, as one, as part of that, we need to boycott uh, this event taking place in Israel. It's already a stated position of government. Government has already supported it when the Department of Arts, Sports, Arts and Culture announced it. Now, the question I was answering here is, honorable members seem to be thinking that it must be stopped by home affairs through denying passports. And I was just answering what the law says in this regard. In other words, I was saying it's not for home affairs to start this process by re refusing somebody a passport because passports are guaranteed by the constitution and the law of parliament. Other methods must be used. And that method is already used by the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The second uh, supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Ramola Beng. The Honorable Ramola Beng. The member is on the virtual platform. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, are you taking the follow-up on behalf of the Honorable Member? Yes. Yes. Please proceed. Thank, thank you, Minister. You have uh, uh, responded comprehensively to the question, and Ms. 
Mr. Honorable Hendricks seem to be having more confusion. Minister, there seem to be uh, confusion whether deliberately or not on the both the roles of Home Affairs and, and DECO. Can you, in summary, explain to uh, Honorable Hendricks and outline the process of uh, issuing of passports and the diplomatic relations between countries? Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Minister. Yes, Honorable Member and Honorable House Chair, passports are issued by the Department of Home Affairs via a relevant act of parliament, which act of parliament was operationalization of the constitution of the republic in terms of passport. Now, when it comes to a diplomatic passport, there are certain people who carry diplomatic passport. Home Affairs will never carry, issue a diplomatic passport unless instructed so by DECO, Department of International Relations and Cooperation. They have to give us a, a, a written letter, a, 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 I mean, a, a written information or instruction and say, please issue a diplomatic passport to say and so. Before that, the Department of Home Affairs cannot do anything. To ordinary citizens, we issue passports in terms of the constitution and in terms of the law passed by parliament, which says every South African citizen is entitled to a passport unless they've committed some form of crime and all that and all that. So what I was telling Mr. Hendricks is that the, the, parliament, the, the, the government of South Africa has issued a statement through the Department of, Home, of, of Sports, Arts and Culture in terms of this patient, patient that is taking place, the Miss Universe patient that is taking place in Israel. And I'm saying it is not for home affairs to, to, to facilitate it by refusing anybody a passport. We are unable to do that because we'll be standing against the law and the constitution of the Republic. That does not mean we are delaying freedom, as Mr. Uh, 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 the Honorable Member of Al Jamai is saying. I'm just talking about the procedures, the normal procedures that need to be followed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Bergman. Thank you, Chair. Mr. Minister, the truth is, if you look at the UNHCR report of 2020, the new rankings are out and they are shocking against South Africa because it measures the quality of life of people living in the country and their life expectancy. South Africa is ranked nearly tied with Palestine at 114 and 115 respectively, suggesting that South Africa and Palestine share the same quality of life, yet one is meant to live in apartheid and the other is 22 years out of apartheid. But the real concern that should keep ministers awake at night is that the life expectancy at birth of a Palestinian is 74 years old and a South African is worse off at a mere 64 years old. This is an independent report undertaken by the UN. Minister, are you not embarrassed that whilst we all want peace in the Middle East, is Miss South Africa not better off living in Palestine than in South Africa, never mind competing as the UN report would suggest. The Honourable Minister. Honourable House Chair, I don't know what the Honourable Member is trying to say. If any being in South Africa, whether it's Miss South Africa or not, wants to go and live in Palestine or in Israel, we can't stop them from doing so. People immigrate all the time, if that is what you, you say. Come into life expectancy. We need to understand 
the life expectancy in South Africa went down, dramatically down, because of the advent of HIV and AIDS. And if you follow your policies, you will remember that when we started a massive program of HIV and of ARVs in 2010, life expectancy improved dramatically. Where an eminent world scientist in the name of Professor Salim Karim issued a statement that the change in life expectancy in South Africa is impactful as the slavery. You can go and check the record, he said so. He said that had a huge impact. Now to compare us with, with Palestine or Israel about life expectancy, when you are forgetting the sketch of HIV and AIDS, it's just been disingenuous because that's exactly what you are trying to say. But we don't stop anybody from going to live in Israel or Palestine. If they so choose, it's their choice. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Tito. Thanks, House Chairperson. Uh, yes, Minister, is it not disingenuous and, hypo and hypocritical of your government to want to censure Miss South Africa from participating in comparatively meaningless pageants while your own government has diplomatic ties with Israel and while you still allow trade between these two countries? Thank you, Chairperson. The Honourable Minister. Chairperson, when, when you, you, you choose certain actions at, against particular governments, you choose strategically what you like to do. In this case, the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture, in its wisdom, according to their operations, were engaged with this, the organizers of this pageant. And all they did was to withdraw their support. Other government actions will follow. We also benefited from the same actions during the era of apartheid. And of course, some of the countries which help us could have been told to be disingenuous, etc. But that is how the pressure, the war on, on exerting pressure and boycotts on, on countries, that's how it goes on. At this present moment in time, in its wisdom, the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture thought it was important to take a, a moral step on this. And we've got support from quite a number of people in the population. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable Members, we will now proceed to question 268. That has been asked by the Honourable Beatus to the Minister of Defence and Military Veterans. The Honourable... Thank you, Honourable... Oh, it seems to me the Minister is on the virtual platform. My apologies for that, Honourable Deputy Minister. The Honourable Minister. Thank you, House Chair. The President, in his capacity as Commander-in-Chief of the Forces of South Africa, authorized the deployment of the South African National Defence Force for the period of the 30th October to the 3rd of November to be deployed in support of the South African Police Services for the local government elections 2021. This was at the cost of 47,249,000 rands. The deployment was also done in terms of section 2012A of the constitution, read together with sections 19 of the Defense Act of, 200, of 2002. The focus of the defense 
of the National Defense Force in this deployment was to protect critical installations, to protect um, key national points, and to look after any threat to any strategic route, economic route within the country. We also must say that SANDAP was also on standby to protect to to pro, to SANDAP was also on standby to to give a support for the the IEC after the elections to make sure that the ballot boxes were delivered to where they were supposed to be delivered. We're happy that we we had a successful mission. We are also happy that we returned to base without any incident and no, there were no challenges. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Bierkes. Thank you, uh, House Chair. Uh, thank you for the response, Minister. Uh, we acknowledge and appreciate the role that the SNDF played during the time of local government elections. Minister, uh, according to you, was the five-day deployment sufficient? And are you aware of any incidents after the five days that could have needed the assistance of the SANDF? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. House Chair, thank you very much for that question. Yes, the five days of deployment were enough. The first two days were to help us deploy throughout the country in sufficient time to transport whatever contingency materials we would have wanted to carry. You will remember that we had made a pledge as the South African National Defense Force in case it rained to help provide extra tents and to help provide um, generators in case they were needed. So the, the, there being no other um, need for us after the third, after the delivery of the ballot boxes, we were safely back on the appointed time, so the period was sufficient. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The second supplementary question is to be asked by the Honourable Marie. Chairperson Bayadanki. Uh, Minister, thank you very much for your, for your responses. Um, we know that there's a difference between the authorization called employment and the actual deployment of soldiers. Can you tell us how many of the authorized 10,000 soldiers were actually deployed and how much of the authorized 47 million rand were actually expensed? How many were deployed in each province? And then lastly, Minister, we know that the, we had limited availability of helicopters and C-130s for logistical support. And it was a major concern. How do you intend to rectify the use of helicopters and logistical aircraft into the future. Thank you very much. Honourable Members, let me remind you that the supplementary question is a one supplementary question and not multiple questions. The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Chairperson. I cannot quantify at the moment how much we expended of the 47 million. I can say that the 47 million was expended on both transportation, accommodation, and uh, supplies and allowances to the military. We did not have any issue with the 
um, transportation of the ballot boxes. We did not need to ask for any extraordinary means to fly them. And I think that uh, the Honorable Murray is smuggling the question on the C-130s. We all know that they, they, they do need maintenance. We do also need that some of them are still in flight mode, but we did not need to deploy too many helicopters. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Tebekulu. Thank you, uh, Asher. Uh, Honourable Minister, considering the human rights uh, violations that were uh, reported by the public during the, the hard lockdown in 2020, were the soldiers who were deployed under Operation Prosper adequately uh, trained to conduct policing duties within a human rights-based framework and to avoid a repeat of what ensued. What are the relevant details? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Chairperson, thank you. Members of the National Defence Force were deployed in support of the police. No human rights violations took place during this deployment period of the local government elections. When members of the National Defense Force are deployed in support of the police, they have no business to abuse human, human rights. If an incident is noticed, is reported, then the National Defense Force will, will take the necessary action against such a member. In this particular case of the deployment during local government elections, we did not get any such uh, um, response and yes members of the national defense force are properly trained there is a military disciplinary code the laws of the land applies they do not arrest anybody they cannot do so because when they are in support of the police they work to facilitate the work of the national uh, of the south african police force in this case our focus was to free the police to go and do that which they needed to do to help the IEC. We focused on those strategic installation and national key points. It would have been a different issue, Honorable Tsebekulu, had any citizen tried to sabotage any of the installations or done anything at the national key points, then I might have been able to say to you, yes, there was a violation of human rights or not. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The last supplementary question will be asked by the EFF. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, House Chair. Uh, welcome, Minister. Minister, one of the reasons the President deployed the Army to deal with the unrest in KZN was because he believed that there was an insurrection aimed at toppling the government. What lessons have you learned from that experience? After having had time to assess what happened, do you still believe that the unrest in July were insurrectionists in nature and warranted the deployment of the army? Thank you very much. Point of order. What is the point of order, Honourable Member? I'm rising on to 142. The, the, the question which must be raised must be relevant to the original question or to the response given by the Minister. And this one is a new question altogether. The point of order is sustained. Honourable Members, we will move to the next question, and I have to inform you that question number 269 
that was asked by the Honorable P. Farku to the Minister of Police will fall away. The Honorable Member has since resigned as a member of the Assembly and therefore this question cannot be entertained. I will now proceed to question 289 which has been asked by the Honorable Kanyele to the Minister of Home Affairs. The Honorable Minister. Thank you, House Chair. Following the presentation by the Department of Home Affairs and CETA, the State Information Technology Agency, before the committee, the Portfolio Committee on Home Affairs in August this year, the following challenges were identified as the root cause of the network downtime and proposed solutions were shared with the committee. The first one was on power supply. We reported to the committee that we have provided generators uh, 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 to 197 of the modernized offices of home affairs, so that if there is a, a, a load shedding, home affairs offices are not affected. Secondly, the issue of cable theft and vandalism. The process has commenced with installation of multiple connectivity links, so that if any cable is, 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 is stolen, we'll still be able to work with the connectivity link. Uh, links. The other issue is aging equipment and unstable network. Since 2019, 120, excuse me, 180 required routers and 130 required network switches have been deployed. Attempts are underway to try and reach uh, the 1,050. In other words, we need a total of 1,050 routers and a total of uh, of 1,000 switches. We are in that process. And then from the side of CETA, network upgrades to higher uh, speed lines, e.g. one megabyte to two megabytes and connectivity mode, digital ADLs to fiber, microwaves and mobile LTE. All those are, 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 are in, 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 in process at, at the present moment. Yeah. And we are trying our best to get more money to expedite the, the purchase of routers and switches. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Kanyele. Thank you, House Chair. Honourable Minister, the issue of downtime is a cause of long queues in majority of home affairs offices across the country and members of the community lose days from work because they are turned away without getting the required assistance. Also in August 2021, we conducted an oversight at Edinvale offices where we were advised that in a case of cable theft, they have an MTN router meant to serve as a backup, but it has never worked. Honorable Minister, could you please advise us what is the department's immediate plan to deal with the downtime to keep long queues? Thank you. The Honorable Minister. Honorable member, you are right. And if mentioned in front of this committee, even in August, when we appeared, we see that it is frustrating because the downtime affects work in home affairs more than in any other department, whereby our system gets stuck for up to three hours or even a day. And it is definitely frustrating for us. The issues I've mentioned here about power supply, the issue of, cap I mean, uh, of generators, the issue of cable theft and connectivity, uh, the routers and the switches which are buying to replace aging equipment and the 
Department of Home Affairs be reviewing its enterprise architecture. It's all to try and deal with the issue of downtime. On the issue of the land queues themselves, you are aware why we even try to bring in the banks to help us so as to reduce the number of people who go to home affairs offices. In some home affairs offices, we even deploy some form of marshals or EPWP, as we have done in the Eastern Cape, to help us. In other offices, we try to make sure that there are specialized queues, queues that are moved very fast. We put them and make them special. In other offices, as we have done uh, 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 last month, we even increased the operating times. If you remember towards the election, we set operating times to make sure that people get their IDs were increased by two and a half hours. You are aware that we even opened on Saturday. All of those are to try and deal with these issues, but I agree with you, honorable member. The issue of downtime is very, very frustrating to home affairs, and that's why I would like to resolve it as soon as possible. Thank you, honorable minister. Honorable members, the time allocated for questions has now expired. Outstanding replies received will be printed in Ansat. The Secretary will read the last order of the day. Consideration of report of Standing Committee on Finance on 2021 revised and proposed fiscal framework. The first speaker will be the Honorable Mashwangani. Uh, thank you, Honorable Chairperson. I hereby table the report of the Standing Committee on Finance on 2021 revised and proposed fiscal framework. The Minister of Finance, Honorable Godongwana, tabled the 2021 revised fiscal framework and the proposed 2021 medium term framework on the 11th November 2021. The Deputy Minister of Finance, Dr. David Masondo, Brief the committees of finance and appropriation of both houses, uh, NA and NCOP, on 16 November, respectively. On the same day, the committees received an analysis and submissions on the revised and proposed frameworks from the statutory bodies, the Parliamentary Budget Office, and the Financial and Fiscal Commission. The committees invited the public to make return and oral submissions. We welcome the MTBBS as it reiterates the government's commitment to alter the structure of the economy by lowering barriers to entry, broadening ownership patterns, raising productivity, and lowering the cost of doing business through some of the interventions to be implemented over the MTF. Government, through Operation Vulindlela, has made progress on several key reforms outlined in its October 2020 economic recovery plan. Business confidence has increased significantly between the third and fourth quarter of 2020. This is as a result of the easing of lockdown restrictions in the recent months, which has restored some economic activity. The assumptions in improved fiscal outlook also look at the possibility of getting the population immunized against COVID-19 to ensure 
the economy returns to normal operations. Surging commodity prices have improved the year the in-year revenue outlook, higher than expected revenue collection, enable government to respond with a fiscal package of 37.9 billion in 2021-2022. I'm tabling this report, Chairperson, whilst new waves and variants of the COVID-19 pandemic pose a threat to the global economic outlook. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to take a toll on global growth. Global growth is projected at 5.5% in 2021, which reflects a significant recovery from a growth rate of minus 4.4% in 2020. In 2022, global growth is projected to grow by 4.2%. Advanced economies are projected to grow at a slower rate than emerging markets and developing economies in 2021 and 2022. South Africa's growth output has improved. In contrast to the 2020 MTBPS growth record of minus 7.8%, South Africa's real GDP growth is now projected at 3.3% in 2021, and is expected to slow to 2.2% in 2022. Compared to the second quarter of 2020, where the agriculture, forestry, and fishing industry was the key contributors to the GDP growth, in the third quarter in 2020, all the key industries, namely manufacturing, mining, Enquiring, trade, catering, accommodation, transport, storage and communication, finance, real estate, business services, and construction were positive contributors to GDP growth. This was mainly as a result of the easing of COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. The mining and quarrying industry grew by 288.3%, which translates to a contribution of 11.8% points to GDP growth. COVID-19 has resulted in millions of people losing their jobs. According to States SA, the number of unemployed persons increased from 6.5 million in the third quarter of 2020 to 7.2 million in the fourth quarter. The country's unofficial, uh, official unemployment rate, which is calculated using the number of persons who are employed and uh, but exclude economically inactive persons, has increased from 30.8 in the third quarter of 2020 in the in the third quarter of 2020 to 34.4%. However, the expanded definition stands at 44.4%. Uh, the pandemic has compounded these challenges, which puts more pressure on the state to provide social grants and other relief measures. Consumption expenditure and real disposable income 
of households fell by 1.5% year in year in quarter 2020 due to loss of jobs and earnings. Honorable Chairperson, tax revenue was negatively impacted by the pandemic with many businesses closing down while all the tax revenue categories have been revised, it is expected that personal income tax will remain low over the medium term. National Treasury will lower the rate of corporate income tax while reducing the incentives afforded to corporates to improve competitiveness and reduce the incentives of profit shifting to lower jurisdictions. Over the medium term, the fiscal outlook remains under pressure with state-owned companies in distress, the rising wage bill, the municipalities in distress, load shedding, and the impact of the debt burden. South Africa's risk of falling into a debt trap remains with more loans, cash committed, and debt services costs raised required to finance the widening fiscal gap. Over the medium term, debt is projected to grow from 3.935 trillion to 5.537 trillion. Debt service costs, sorry, debt service costs will continue rising over the medium term, given the persistent main budget deficit weaker currency, and higher interest rates. The increasing uh, interest rate growth differential means that South Africa must raise larger primary balance surpluses in order to stabilize the debt. Honorable Speaker, we are concerned as the committee because debt service cost is the fastest growing spending item. Debt service cost will increase on average annually by 13.3% from 232.9 billion in 2020-2021 to 338.6 billion in 2023-24, consuming almost 22 cents of every rent generated in gross tax in 2023-24, enriching bondholders and perpetuating inequalities. If this trend is not contained, government will soon have to borrow money to primarily pay the interest costs on outstanding debt, ushering South Africa into a debt trap. Rising debt service costs estimated at $1 trillion over the medium term is crowding out expenditure on service delivery functions like health, education, social development, etc highlighting the impact of South Africa's rising debt stock on basic services. Honorable Chairperson, SOEs is another area that needs attention. SOEs are important as they are intended to play a vital role in infrastructure delivery and the provision of basic services. Yet a number of these public institutions show poor performance SOEs pose a significant risk to the fiscal outlook in the form of contingent liabilities. Financial support to SOEs cumulatively reached 129 billion rand between 2020 2021 
2022-23. But more may be required as the COVID-19 shocks will weaken the finances of many SOEs. Some define the challenge of SOEs as a conundrum. That is a situation where there is no clear right answer or no good solution. The Minister of Finance characterizes the relationship between National Treasury and SOEs to have reached a stage of, I quote, tough love. He said this in the light of several entities making requests for further bailouts. We welcome submissions, as I've said, from the public in, the, in written and oral form. Committee observations and recommendations. The committee acknowledges that the 2021 MTBBS was stable under continued difficult socioeconomic conditions of poverty, inequality, and unemployment magnified by COVID-19 pandemic. On social grants, social wage, and fiscal packages, the committee welcomes the extension of the special COVID-19 uh, social relief of distress grant, which now has reached 9.5 million beneficiaries. Although temporary, this has brought the number of social grant beneficiaries in the country to 27.8 million, or 46% of the population. Risks to the fiscal framework and SOEs, the committee notes the announcement by the minister that the MTBPS BS made no additional funding to SOEs. It welcomes the explanation given to the committee that this does not mean no support at all will be given to SOEs when warranted, given their importance. However, we call upon National Treasury to put conditions of good governance and management of those SOEs to uh, be able to get uh, a bailout. The committee that is COF will confer with the Portfolio Committee on Public Enterprises on a joint briefing on SOEs restructuring by Treasury and DPE to deal with the challenges that are facing SOEs. Structural reforms. The committee knows the progress reported in the MTBBS on the implementation of the structural reforms, particularly in energy, transport, tourism, infrastructure, and telecommunication as, operation, as overseen by Operation Vulinden. On fiscal policy, the committee recommends that the Minister of Finance reports quarterly on the effectiveness of Treasury's debt management strategies that will ensure that the debt level stabilizes over the medium term and avoids a sovereign debt crisis. The committee notes that the 2021-22 fiscal framework now includes the 3 billion rand in the contingency reserve for additional vaccine and also 1.3 billion targeted for small businesses. Uh, other issues. The committee notes that based on the current agreement, National Treasury has set aside 20.5 billion as an additional provisional uh, allocation for the wage bill in order to cater for the ongoing wage negotiations. We think more should be done in this regard because the wage bill is ever skyrocketing. The committee recommends that the procurement bill and the processing of Regulation 28 of the Pension Fund be acted. Uh, shiftly. We also recommend notes that the Financial Action Task Team, uh, Force Mutual 
mutual evaluation report found gaps in the implementation of South Africa's anti-money laundering and terrorist financing measures. We call upon government to look at establishing interministerial committee to deal with illicit financial uh, flows. As the committee, we would like to thank all those who participated in the process of compiling this report, the public through oral and written submissions, the input of the minister and the deputy minister of finance, the DG and other officials from Treasury, SARS and other entities, FFC, PBO, SCOF support team, public at large. I, therefore, Chairperson, move that the report be adopted. Baya Dangi, Lakers. Thank you, Honorable Member. The next speaker is the Honorable George. Thank you, Speaker. Um, sorry, thank you, Chairperson. When the Minister tabled his revised fiscal framework, he mentioned the tough love that he would be giving to the state-owned enterprises as part of his overall objective to achieve fiscal sustainability, economic growth and stabilise debt. We can achieve fiscal sustainability if revenue increases faster than the need for social relief and other government spending is restrained. The fiscal framework relies on real GDP growth over the medium term and government expenditure as a percentage of GDP declining. This can be achieved if the Minister's tough love can be given to economic policy, the public sector wage bill and the state-owned enterprises, especially ESCOM. The scourge of unemployment and poverty is a direct result of the ANC government's incoherent economic policy and its failed economic model that attempted to place a failed state at the centre of our economy. Government intervention in our economy has extended far beyond what is required to correct for market failure, and its failed broad-based black economic empowerment created a few billionaires off the backs of the 27.8 million South Africans now reliant on social security grants. Although it is convenient to blame COVID for the so-called scarring of weak economic performance post-pandemic, our economy was performing well below its potential before the pandemic arrived. Government's chaotic and corruption-riddled vaccine rollout further slowed our recovery. Revenue increased with the commodities boom, but that won't last. There must be real growth. That growth can only be achieved if business can flourish. Jobs can be created in small, medium and micro enterprises in particular. The minister needs to apply his tough love to cutting the costs of doing business and that will grow the economy, reduce unemployment, lift revenue and reduce reliance on social security grants. Active steps need to be taken outside of increased government spending on infrastructure to increase, increase GDP. Former Minister Mbaweni spoke boldly about reining in the public sector wage bill. Without any progress, the DA proposed freezing wages of public servants not covered by the occupation-specific dispensation, such as the 9,000 millionaire managers who grow rich while frontline service providers battle to make ends meet. This would save 116 billion rand over the medium term and would relieve pressure on our borrowing and interest on debt and achieve a primary surplus by 2023-2024. Interest on debt now exceeds health, social development and peace and security combined. 
This is not the path to fiscal sustainability. We're left to see if the new minister will be able to do what his predecessor couldn't. Projected GDP growth will not be achieved if the power supply remains unpredictable. Tax revenue cannot be generated when the lights are off and the machines aren't moving. The state-owned enterprises have drained, drained hundreds of billions from service delivery and we expect the minister to do what he says he will do. This is to stop bailing them out and let the private sector do what government can't. Eskom is a dead horse and must be separated into three entities for generation, transmission and distribution. Private sector participation remains the only way forward. The revised fiscal framework is unrealistic because the minister talks about tough love when there is no political will to apply it. A strong political will is required to root out corruption, enable business to thrive by ensuring a steady power supply, to manage the public sector wage bill and to stop the bailouts. It is very easy, Minister, to talk tough. We've heard the same from Minister Manuel, Minister Gordon, Minister Nene, and Minister Mbaweni. Van Royen and Gagaba never even touched sides. We weren't able to question the Minister because he hasn't addressed the committee yet. Unlike every other Minister before him, so far we are not impressed with Minister Tough Love Godondwana. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. The next speaker is the Honourable Mawatwe. Thank you very much, uh, Chair. Chair, the revised fiscal framework presented by the new Finance Minister confirmed what you have always been saying as the EFF. The National Treasury continues to be the tail that is waging the dog, while the dog in the former liberation movement continues with its now fast approaching death. The presented revised fiscal framework failed to put forward any practical, believable, or implementable interventions for an economy and a society facing a deepening crisis of poverty, inequality, and unemployment. We didn't expect the new minister to deviate from the emboldened and trenched in the national treasury right-wing ideological drivel presented as technical competence over the years. Even the deputy minister who many considered progressive is now shifting to the right and sounds like a new liberal. The reality is that it is only the death of the ANC that will clear a path for alternative thinking about the overall fiscal framework to begin to undo the macroeconomic incompetence and right-wing ideological drivel that has characterized South African economic policymaking. Chair, we want to do what we did to the ANC in Johannesburg, Tswani, Ekurleni, and in all other municipalities that told the ruling party that they have no, they do not have enough, and they have had enough, and they did not vote for them. The revised fiscal framework presented as a tool to, na to navigate South Africa's economic and society, social recovery plan is nothing but an assurance to rating agencies, financiers, and colonial masters. It failed to illustrate much-needed interventions to, to address issues of millions of unemployment youth who need jobs today. Parents who need to feed their children and put a, a roof over their heads today. Even the much-needed grants to address immediate desperations that we saw amongst our people in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng during the July civil unrest. Chair, the fiscal framework is, has, is, is vindicated that the Harvard neoliberal-sponsored economic reconstruction and recovery plan shoved down the throats of the sheepish Kwasati and SAPC as a, as a non-negotiable 
is now the pamphlet, pamphlet driving South Africa deeper into neoliberal clutches. If anything, what is before the National Assembly today is a report back to show that South Africa is still committed to austerity, privatization of strategic SOEs, and the commitment to entrench the role of the private sector in strategic areas that were previously reserved for the state, such as port and rail management. The finance minister, National Treasury, and Mr. Ramaphos reported to their handlers instead of telling millions of South Africans the intervention to the immediate challenges that they are facing. And we are here expected to adopt the National, uh, the National Assembly a fiscal framework. Member, there is a point of order that I wish to take. I'm rising on Rule 85, Chair. The, the speaker on the podium has just said the president has reported to his handlers. I think that it does casting aspirations on the character of the president. It must be brought to, in the form of a substantive motion into the House. Thank you. Order, Honourable Members. Honourable Member, that you refer to the president uh, as dealing or reporting to his handlers? Okay, I'm saying if anything what you are dealing with today, what is before the National Assembly today, is a report back to show that South Africa is committed to austerity, privatization of strategic SOEs, and the commitment to entrench the role of private sector in strategic areas that are previously reserved for the state. The finance minister, national treasury, and Mr. Ramaphosa reported to the handlers instead of telling millions of South Africans about the intervention to the immediate challenges, and we are here expected to adopt a fiscal framework that seeks to condemn our people to perpetual poverty. Honorable member, you have just repeated it again. Will you withdraw the remark? It's in violation of Rule 85. I want to finish, so let me withdraw. That's fine. Honorable Member, are you withdrawing the remark unconditionally? Chair, I'm withdrawing. Thank you. <laughs> I want to finish my report. There's nothing that is going to stop me from finishing. One another, we must sit down. Continue, Honorable. continue to be subjected to unreliable electricity due to the incompetence and directionlessness of the Public Enterprise Minister, of, Minister and ESCOM Board and Management. Instead of providing a direct decisive intervention to stabilize ESCOM and electricity supply, the finance minister chose to reassure renewable energy independent power producers and banks that are driven by greed and profiteering that they are now a priority and will be sources of South Africa's, South Africa's primary energy source. The framework does not indicate the relief to workers, pensioners and social grants receipts, and small businesses who are suffering due to continued blackouts. South Africa cannot talk about economic recovery without a clear plan of dependable energy supply. <clears throat> Nor the drive to serve the interests of a few powerful individuals who want to control energy supply for nefarious reasons. Most disheartening, Chairperson and Radev, the unforgivable and acceptable posture of the ruling party and national treasury is failure to appreciate that austerities embedded in the fiscal framework is killing our people. It is no longer a desktop exercise of cutting budgets without consequences. People are dying. Police officers are being robbed inside their own police stations. Nurses are collapsing because of fatigue, and emergency medical workers are also robbed in townships. We must begin to show a clear correlation between austerities and loss of life, because those are the consequences of austerity measures that are imposed on us by the Minister of Finance. The EFF rejects the revised fiscal framework of Washington. Thank you. The next speaker is the Honorable Butelezi. Uh, thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. 
This report provides very assurance that government structural reform will stimulate our economy. We can't move this economy forward when it continues to suffer blows of maladministration, corruption, and weak leadership at the helm of state entities. This revised fiscal framework, while on paper looks good and speaks to some of the issues we face in the economy, as the IFP believe that stronger and more concrete measures need to be put in place to get our economy on the right track. We must, at, at the outset, remove the obstacles to our economic growth. Many are aware of these obstacles that stand in our way of growth and development, yet it seems we continue year on year to tap dance around the issues instead of addressing them head on. The medium-term budget policy statements, apparent commitment to improving competitiveness, productivity, investment, and employment, rings hollow on the face of the daily electricity blackouts, red tapes constraints on small businesses and medium enterprises, and an unemployment rate of 34%. The MTB policy statement's assertion that all efforts have been made over the last 18 years to fix ESCOM is shameful and which have seen. Experts have estimated that we lost over 75 billion towards our GDP just because of ESCOM. Therefore, it is shocking that for five consecutive years, ESCOM has received a, a qualified opinion with fruitless and wasteful expenditure amounting to just over 1.28 billion. Honorable Chairperson, we are talking here about billions of friends, not millions, not thousands, and certainly not small change. Simply put, members, it's high time that we walk the talk of these reports. Improving investments and boosting investors' confidence can only be met by enforcing consequence management on SOEs and state institutions and to show that there is a political will to fight corruption. The IFP welcomes the announcement that there will be no additional funding available to SOEs over the medium-term budget, as we cannot stress more the committee's recommendation that clear turnaround plans of SOEs must be regularly provided to Parliament. The IFP furthermore remains concerned about the increased spending on debt servicing costs, which is estimated over $1 trillion. The impact that this cost to service our debt will have on essential services such as health, education, social development, and service delivery in local government over the next few years is worrisome. The IFP strongly favors the committee's recommendation that the Minister of Finance should report to Parliament quarterly on efficiency of the debt management strategies we have in place so that we avoid a sovereign debt crisis. In closing, I will chairperson, the, our government is not pro-poor. The NC government is pro-self. They are only concerned about their pockets and their families eating. We need not look further than the rejection by the voters of five more years of NC government in some parts of our country, and particularly in Guazunatal. Instead of accepting the defeat, the NC would rather throw chairs and transcend to avoid having local government be formed in KZN. Their concern is to have their head remain in the cookie jar and to keep the status quo of looting the public purse. However, the IFP's main concern is that the most vulnerable and poor South Africans are the ones who suffer the most due to years of government's failure to control spending, cut corruption, and deliver services to our local government. We cannot allow this rampage to continue. We must demand accountability strong and, and strongly enforce our oversight power as parliament. Let us demand answers for those who have no voice. The IFP supports the committee's report, Honorable Chairperson. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Member. The next speaker is the Honorable Vessels. Thank you, Honorable House Chairperson. 
House Chair, the biggest challenge to the South African fiscus is to balance socioeconomic needs with fiscal sustainability. This because government's debt has reached 70% of the GDP. This debt is unsustainable and also not conducive to economic growth. The only solution to the country's fiscal crisis is economic This government and its policies are, however, the enemies of sustainable economic growth. This government and its looting and corruption are the adversaries of addressing socioeconomic inequalities. The ruling party and its alliance partners are the opponents of eradicating poverty and creating job opportunities. The higher-than-expected tax revenues will have to cover the higher costs of the public wage bill. If the public wage bill is not contained, it will undermine the measures aimed at fiscal consolidation. Funds are being shifted from the infrastructure fund to compensate for the 2021 wage agreement. We need infrastructure maintenance and development to obtain the much-needed investments and economic development. Although there is currently no new provision for bailouts to failed state-owned entities, the 787 billion rand worth in debt of state-owned entities guaranteed by government is a significant liability and risk to the fiscus over the next three years. It is the ruling party and its policy of cadre deployment which have destroyed state-owned entities. The road accident house chairperson has liabilities of 450 billion rand. This fund is dysfunctional and poses a risk to the fiscus and is a waste of taxpayers' money. It should be replaced by legislating compulsory third-party liability insurance for all motor vehicle owners. We are in trouble. This boat is sinking. The political will is needed to implement structural reforms, contain the public wage bill, privatize state-owned entities, and create an environment with policy certainty which will stimulate investment, growth, and job creation. We need real, sustainable economic growth, which will create wealth and get the vulnerable into jobs and off social dependency. The only way to do this is by creating a conducive environment for the private sector to then create jobs. Then we need reliable energy supply, service delivery, and policy certainty. Without this and the necessary political will, this fiscal framework will remain a pipe dream. I thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. The next speaker is Honourable Swart. Thank you, Chairperson. Chairperson, the medium-term statement was tabled under extremely difficult socioeconomic conditions of poverty, inequality, and unemployment, which are magnified by pre-COVID-19 poor economic growth, the COVID-19 pandemic, 
and the harsh lockdown, as well as July's rioting, rioting and looting. Now, the Minister of Finance tried his very best to balance the fiscal and political pressures forced by economic stagnation and government policy uncertainty. The good news is that tax collection is expected to be 120 billion rand better than projected. This due mainly to an upsurge in commodity prices. However, on the downside, there will be increased spending, which will be dominated by three items. Wage increases for public servants, the extension of the social relief of distress grant, and the public works program. Now, clearly, the ACDP supports the, the extension of the special COVID-19 social relief of distress grants, which now has, uh, uh, um, which assists about 9.5 million beneficiaries. And although this is temporary, it has assisted a number of people, but brings to a total in the country 27.8 million people, 46% of the country's population that are receiving social grant beneficiations. Now, while social grants are supported and necessary to assist the poor in the short term, clearly this is unsustainable in the long term due to a dwindling tax basis. What is needed, and, I'm sure, and we are all in agreement with that, is economic growth to stimulate economic uh, growth, job creation, and the reduction of the number of people on social grant. Now, the balance of the tax windfall besides that expenditure will be used for fiscal consolidation, and this is necessary to address the spiraling public debt and that the ACDP supports. It is, however, concerning that an additional 60 billion rand is to be added to the spending ceiling for 2021 and 30 billion over the next two years. And this results in an already dire public finances position worsening, particularly given the background that economic growth is only expected to be 1.8% over the medium term. And as other speakers have indicated, debt service costs continue to crowd out social expenditure. Thus, whilst the policy statement sets out a slightly better fiscal position than that projected in February's budget, the fiscal outlook remains dire and requires prudent stewardship of state resources. This will require commitment and courage. This will indeed require tough love. And it remains to be seen whether the minister has the necessary political support to implement the tough love, particularly when it comes to these state-owned enterprises. I thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. The next speaker is the Honourable Kwankwa. I'm informed the Honourable Member is not on the platform. I'll proceed to the Honourable August. Thank you, Chairperson. Chairperson, good notes that is the revised fiscal framework proposed by National Treasury. Good welcomes his frank acknowledgement that the COVID-19 pandemic has worsened South Africa's pre-COVID-19 socioeconomic challenges of high levels of poverty, inequality, and unemployment. The Finance Ministry explained that the purpose of the 2021 medium-term budget policy statement is to provide the nation with progress made with the implementation of the fiscal framework and economic growth, which is an important, important variable that affects other variables. To this end, Good knows that national debt and the state-owned enterprises remains a glaring binding constraints to growth and the risk to fiscal sustainability. The point of the state is to ensure that adequate 
services are provided to the South African people. And for some time, that relationship has been inverted by seeing South Africans footing the bill for SOEs that continue to default on their mandates to provide services to the people. While we welcome what the revised fiscal framework seeks to achieve generally, we remain unconvinced that the three billion proposed for refinance on an SOE like the NAL is rational. Why the NAL? How strategic is this in the provision of better services for South Africa? The opportunity cost of this recapitalization would be better served contributing to getting us out of the COVID-induced economic slump in which we find ourselves or providing a security net for the most vulnerable South Africans that continues, continue to languish in poverty. The fastest growing item on the budget is not, not one of the critical, which is education, social services and security sectors. It is serving government debt, paying the interest on loans. Government is losing billions to corruption and mismanagement through wasteful and irregular expenditure. Many problems are caused by cadre deployment and corruption within government administrations and state-owned enterprises. Departments and SOEs are bloated at senior management levels. Far too much is spent on these salaries and perks at the expense of employing more nurses and teachers at the point of service delivery. Government needs focus on stabilizing and tightening the financial controls and governance culture in these SOEs before further plunging billions into this particular financial black hole. Chair, specifically Treasury and the Department of Public Enterprises, the custodian of all SOEs, has to look closer in fixing the root cause of the deficiencies at the power utility. ESCOM's total debt has ballooned from 40 billion in 2008 to 419 billion in recent years. But ESCOM's income is less than 30 billion. ESCOM sells electricity to South, to South Africans at a higher cost than it does to our neighboring countries. The country's primary power utility is technically bankrupt. Electricity disruptions are undermining the entire economy. In the most recent election, good campaign on the platform that electricity costs are astronomical and that our residents can ill afford it. Time has expired. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you. The next speaker is the Honorable CBC. Honorable Member, you are not audible. Can you raise your voice, please? Welcome the seemingly tough stance taken by the Minister of Finance on, on future SOE bailouts. We know the stance of the minister, but it is not enough to take a stance. We hope that the stance will translate to action. Many of our SOEs have been and were still unproductive and dependent on taxpayers' money to survive. Their poor performance, poor governance is not helping in making things easier or at least bearable for us. We call on the Minister of Finance and the whole of government to ensure that this stance translates to action. We also call upon Treasurer looking to channel some of the bailouts that would have otherwise been provided to SOEs to be redirected to supporting SMMEs. SMMEs are the backbone of this country and government understand this because MMEs were expected to generate 90% of the 11 million new jobs aimed for in the National Development Plan 2030. However, a report on MMEs access to finance that was conducted by FinFind identified that 
access to funding was a major obstacle for many former SMEs in South Africa. The cutting of public spending on social services such as healthcare, education, and job creation would impact many in a substantial negative way. The rising food prices had ultimately made the cost of living too high, and for the unemployed surviving, it's becoming harder and harder. The ever-increasing fuel prices are affecting the prices of other commodities in the economy, and the middle class seems to be carrying this burden. Each passing day, it is becoming harder and harder to survive in South Africa. House Chair, we can confidently say that there was really nothing new in the MTPPS which stood out to attract investment or even build confidence domestically and beyond the borders of South Africa. We see increased spending primarily going public sector wages, but yet we do not see performance or productivity in public sector institutions in parallel with that. We can all agree that there is a need for basic income grant, and we can also agree that the 350 grant was not enough. Revenue is not necessarily an issue, but government expenditure remains a sinister issue. The expenditure increased on average of 8.8%, which was significantly higher than inflation because of the public sector wage bill. It would be an injustice to not mention that unemployment in South Africa was one of the highest in the world. The 18.3 million count of beneficiaries of social grants in 2020-2021 was expected to grow by 22.6 million in 2040-2041. This is where we believe it is important for government to intensify support towards SMMEs and support initiatives that will foster job creation to move away from creating dependence on the state relief so people can have jobs and sustain their livelihoods. The National Freedom Party was pleased with 11 billion for PSP, which created over 550 jobs and provided young people with a salary and experience. Remember, your time is now expired. Thank you. The next speaker is the Honourable Hendricks. Uh, thank you, Honourable House Chair. Honourable House Chair, the new Minister of Finance has risen, risen to the occasion. It is all about love, because of love, the ANC is now one at the Queenie. Well done. Government has not failed, as the official opposition says, but big business plan has come together to impoverish South Africa. Zero-based budgeting will help prevent the funding of white privilege uh, given by apartheid. Big business is our worst nightmare. That's why NGOs must now create jobs. Our foreign debt blocks the space to help South Africans in need. There has not been any positive response from Afrikaner big business to help reduce this debt after the late president declared apologize for the advantages and wealth they acquired because of apartheid. So the country is on its own and Afrikaners just get richer and richer and allow the poor to suffer. Can't they at least help with water? I hope ministers will support, the minister will support our Zamas 19th Amendment to the Constitution when the time comes that there should be a right and not only access to water so a proper budget can be allocated. al rejects the budget allocated for water provision, also for the National Prosecution Authority. There is not enough money to prosecute Imam Harun's apartheid killers. Does the minister want to delay prosecution until the apartheid killers die a natural death? How must the Harun family and other parties feel? No social grantee should be left destitute. Why can't they work a day or two and municipalities be given the responsibility? Al-Zamar, support the report. Thank you, Honourable Member. The next speaker is the Honourable Chief of the Opposition. 
Thank you very much, House Chairperson. Good afternoon, all members except the leader of Al Jamaa. The fiscal framework tells us a terrifying tale of a ballooning debt and a low growth trap. Hard realities are beginning to bite. Of course, the simplistic explanation of chalking it all up to the COVID-19 pandemic and the fiscal fallout thereof is but uh, just an excuse. The reality is much more complex. The ANC, let's be honest, has spent the last decade blaming the ballooning debt and contracting fiscal space on the 20, 2008 financial crisis, which became a convenient card to pull out year in and year out. Even as other countries recovered, and many, especially on the African continent, have achieved massive growth, created jobs and reduced poverty. Meanwhile, South Africa has been sleepwalking into more poverty, more inequality and more joblessness. This was all done while taking on more debt. Debt servicing costs will now consume more than health care and social services combined. Let me repeat that. Debt servicing costs will now consume more than health care and social services combined in a country where the GDP coefficient, the Gini coefficient, is the largest in the world. We cannot go on like this. The consequences of the debt burden is a crippling public service and caring for the poor will become non-existent. Despite population growth, the state has not meaningfully increased the numbers of doctors or nurses in the public sector. Despite worsening crime, the state has not meant international standards on the police to population ratio, and nor do they care. Despite the pandemic, the state is not able to provide relief of, uh, to equal the food poverty line, and neither does the state care. These are the real consequences of the public is feeling of the ANC's financial mismanagement. The only way to achieve meaningful reform is to get onto a path of growth. But the fiscal framework shows there has no plan to, to grow the economy, reduce poverty and increase employment. Policy paralysis is still the order of the day. There is too much uncertainty to attract investment. GDP projections by the National Treasury show that there won't be any meaningful economic recovery, with GDP growth likely to be under 2% per annum for the next three years. This is not tough love. This is where love ends. This is not even enough to create jobs for new entrants into the job market, let alone alleviate those trapped in poverty. Even where the state does not try to impact on growth through infrastructure, it produces a neg negative multiplier effect. Even the government's own fiscal and financial commission has noted that doubtful state of infrastructure investment will bring positive outcome as government projects projects are characterized by cost overruns, wasteful contracting, maladministration, malice compliance, and non-compliance with shoddy workmanship. The only way to get growth and deliver services to the poor, as well as create much needed jobs, is to eradicate poverty, is to implement real reforms, and to increase state revenue, attract fixed investment to industrialize the economy and take practical steps to end CADA deployment and build a real capable state. 
The ANC is obviously not interested in any of this, but thankfully we can now say with confidence that this government is on borrowed time, and in due course the citizens can and will replace them with a government willing to make the hard choices that they are not prepared to, just like they did in Tswane, in, in Kurileni, in Johannesburg and Midvale. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honourable Member. The next speaker is the Honourable Mabiletsa. Order, Honourable Members, order. Tobel. Tobel. Chairperson and members of the National Assembly, what this debate needs to appreciate is that a fiscal framework and revenue proposal help to address the concrete conditions that the country faces and not the sectional interest of any political party. The framework has to respond to the governing party's electoral mandate since it is the mandate that the majority of South Africans who voted for us, st clearly stated in 2019, they wanted to see and change their lives for the better. Therefore, any critique of the revised fiscal framework and revenue proposal must apply itself to whether the interests of the masses of our people are being met or not in the revised framework. Opinions and sectional interests do not constitute a critique. Rather, they reflect preferences and when dealing with policy and financial instruments to fund such policy, we have to be better informed than just expressing opinions and preferences. Anyone can have a preference or an opinion, but when dealing with finances and policy, bring facts and evidence if you want us to believe your arguments. Firstly, the fact is that the revised fiscal uh, framework places almost 60% of its expenditure on social services. This is a reflection that it is both responding to the serious challenges and unemployment and poverty and also responding to the ANC's policy position of providing for comprehensive social protection. Secondly, the revised fiscal framework, it built upon the economic con containment package that was introduced in 2020 to help government, the economy and stakeholders in the economy to deal with the devastating impact of COVID. Thirdly, the revised framework and revenue proposal have to deal with the vexed question of how best to stimulate growth and development. In responding to this question, we are deeply aware that in the field of economic, there will be contesting views and this should be welcomed. As the NC, the challenge is not that there are contesting views, but what informs these views. For the NC, it is only on the balance of economic and socioeconomic evidence that any government that claims to represent the will of the people can take decisions. We cannot take decisions as we have had today on the basis of preferences and dogma. Neither work when you have to run an economy. 
Fourthly, alongside taking the correct decisions that, that will stimulate growth, we have to deal with the concrete reality of debt and avoid a debt sovereign crisis. As we have said, there is nothing wrong, there is nothing wrong with debt. All countries have it, but it depends on what you have the debt for. And so, for the ANC, it is about the strategy to deal with debt management that inform our responses and not some of the emotional language from the opposition that we have had today. When you manage an economy, you take long-term decisions, not short-term, knee-jerk reaction. Those parties who can only respond to the immediacy of things and which create even more instability. Change is an economy, is a thorough-going process, not easy to achieve and requires strategic thinking, not populist rhetoric. Fifthly, the re uh, regulatory reforms which were introduced in 2020 are expanded upon in the revised fiscal framework. They are going to have an impact on the economy and we will need to evaluate this closely, in particular, how these reforms will deal with the actual structure of the economy, a matter that takes time and is not short-term. In particular, in particular, dealing with digitalization and severe market concentration, we are putting money aside for infrastructure development, so addressing digitalization of this process in criti is critical. Six, there are risks and we need to understand the risks we face. The International Monetary Fund, World Bank, UN agencies and others all point to the damaging effects of poverty, unemployment, inequality on economic performance and microeconomic, social and political stability. This is a risk which the framework seeks to try and address. As the committee, we have recommended that National Treasury broadens its risk identification and analysis so that adequate uh, mitigation measures can be catered for in the fiscal framework. Seven, we have listened carefully to submissions from the public on the revised framework. We have had strong views on the application of fiscal consolidation and listened to the National Treasury's response that by 2024-25 it will be discontinued. We believe this will provide the space to engage further. Eighth, there are two matters that all political parties have to go pull together on in this house. And this is the quality of spending and the inability to spend budget. Putting aside legitimate explanation, the reality is that parliament has, to, has got to seize itself the demanding far more accountability from departments and their entities on these two matters. Through each committee, we should have long devised and monitoring mechanism that can provide in the quarterly reports an early warning on quality of spend and inability to spend. We continue to state our point that we are open to being persuaded, but persuasion must come, must be convincing based on facts and evidence. Having considered the 2021 revised fiscal framework and revenue proposal, the ANC is convinced at this point that the framework offers the best 
balance in dealing with our multiple challenges and we support the framework and proposal. Thank you, Honourable Member. The next speaker is the Honourable Deputy Minister of Finance. Uh, thank you, Honourable Chair, Honourable Members. Um, I would also like to thank the Chair of the Standing Committee, Honourable Joma Songanyi and his committee. I must indicate, Chair, that uh, the ANC is still a leading political force in this country. It has legitimacy in many of the wards. And we also want to thank Al Jamaa in particular. I use this opportunity to thank them for the continuous support that they are providing in making sure that uh, we create a stable local government as a precondition for our economic growth. Chair, this, one, this was one of the most challenging years we had to deal with as a country, the pandemic, the recent social unrest, which worsened our economic situation, including poverty, unemployment, and inequality. And we were the first to admit that even before COVID, our economy was not in good shape. Through this MTPPS, we've provided a fiscal response to this challenge. 60% of our budget goes to the social wage. And I must indicate here that fiscal response is one of the many responses that our government continues to implement to deal with our economic situation, including implementing the structural reforms. One of the reforms that the market has highly celebrated is a licensing threshold for self-generation to 100 megawatts. And there are a number of structural reforms that we are undertaking to make sure that we put our economy on a sustainable growth path. Because the structural performance of our economy is more important than the cyclical economic performance, like the one that we've seen recently with the commodity boom, which gave us some extra revenue. And it's not the first one. We've had one in the early 2000s, which gave us some budget surplus. But what is very clear is that as long as we don't undertake serious structural reforms to put our economy on a sustainable basis, many of these microeconomic challenges, including our public debt, unemployment, will not be addressed. Honorable Chair, we really appreciate the comments, the support, and the critical feedback to this empty BPS, which was really an update to the House and to South Africans on how we've implemented the fiscal framework so far and how the outer years will look like. And between now and February, 
will elaborate further our fiscal stance consistent with what the minister articulated in the budget speech. The minister also committed that we will engage political parties in advance so that our fiscal stance is informed by robust debates, by facts before us. And I really want to thank, as I said, the critical feedback that we got, the support, the comments from honorable members. And between now and Feb, we'll rework, but consistent with what was presented in the budget speech and accompanying document. I really want to thank you, Chair, and the honorable members. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Minister. Honorable members, that concludes the debate on this matter. I now recognize the Honorable Chief Whip of the Majority Party. Uh, thank you very much, House Chair. House Chair, I stand to... <laughs> I move that the report be adopted by the House. Thank you. The motion is that the report be adopted. Are there any objections? House Chair, please note the objection of the Democratic Alliance. Will be noted. House Chair, House. please note the objection of the EFF. Thank you. And the House, House Chairperson. Yes. House Chairperson and the Freedom Front Plus, please. Objection is noted. Are there any further objections? Yes, no further objections. And with those objections, the report is adopted. Honourable Members, that concludes the business for the day and the House is adjourned.